You want a beer? Yep. I got, uh, well, I got this hard seltzer from Hawaii, Hawaiian ginger, Ola hard seltzer. I have a scrappy apple from Talbots. I have a Leinenkugel summer shandy, which mm. I've been quite a fan of recently with the heat. And then I got the old faithful, the Coors Light. I mean, I'll do the summer shandy. This is not a uh, showcase of craft beer, obviously. I had one of the best Coors Lights of my life yesterday. Where? Well, we did the farmer's market. Yeah. And it was like a billion degrees. You know, kombucha is hard. Are you guys drinking back there? No, no. We're just hydrating. Actually, it was funny. Julia bought a ton of Pedialytes to like keep us hydrated because last time we did it a couple months ago, or not a couple months ago, last month, we just got burnt out, like you know, working hard for four hours, and we just forgot to eat and drink. And at the yeah. end, we're like, oh, my God. So she brought all these Pedialytes. We're not drinking alcohol, just sober, hanging out. But it's a lot of work. I look at some of these other vendors, and their setup is pretty straightforward. A table, chairs, a tent, but then lighter. They're selling jewelry or gifts or something. For us, we're selling kombucha. Yeah, so you're hauling kegs and bottles. Kegs, bottles. And I always bring way too much because I do not want to sell out at the farmer's market. I feel like that would be such a waste of time to sell out in two hours. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, why do we do this? So I always bring way more than I know I can sell just on the case that we – and yeah, it's a lot. Like we start, we wake up at 5.30. I have, we have to like prep everything that morning. I have to go up to Talbot's where the cold storage is, load the van with all the boxes and the bottles and get the ice, bring all the coolers down. So by the time the market even starts, we've been working three hours. So your cold storage is not where your production facility is. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Um, small business life right there. Yeah. I mean, it's not far because it's a small town, so it's nice. It's easy to go back and forth, but. Talbot's has the big cold warehouse, which works. And then yeah. we have our production at the old St. Catharines. Anyway, so after that, you know, you're sweating doing this market the whole time. I came home and you remember the shower beer from college or younger years or from now? I, I, guess. I remember <laughs> shower beer from a couple of weeks ago. I'm pretty sure. It was great, man. I was super hot, sweaty, came home. And Coors Light can be pretty bad if it's not ice cold. But yeah. this, like I found one in the fridge, our top. Uh, level of the fridge just always freezes does that happen to you uh yeah it's happened before i don't know if we just have a shitty fridge but yeah the top level always like has ice and things and there was a Coors light up there i'm like perfect the mountains were bold blue and just it was one of the best i've ever had an ice cold Coors light yeah was, i mean it was awesome that's the only time when a uh, domestic lager is really really good is when it's really really hot and you're like exhausted yeah, and the beer's really, really cold. Yeah. And it's more, it was just such a deep satisfaction. It was nothing like the craft beer experience where, oh, the flavors and the taste. It was like, just wow, this icy, magical liquid going into me. Right. Yeah, it was great. You were at the market yesterday. What did you think? It was good. You know, when we're walking up, I said to my wife, God, I love Palisade. It's such a great town. And she looked at me and said, you say that like five times a week. <laughs> That's and, a great thing. You know, it's just great that I can walk there from my house in two blocks. Everything I need is right next to my house. I can walk there or bike there. I don't have to drive. I, my primary method of commuting is e-bike. It's it's a great life. And, you know, I was in the, I was in, uh, the weedery the other day, and the guy, I don't know his name, but the guy that's always at the front door, the last two times I've been in there, 
he greets me by saying, Welcome to Paladise. And I'm like, man, that is great. I'm going to start using that. Paladise? Yeah. Oh, like Paradise Palisade. Oh, I love that. It's perfect. Heck yeah. Well, you know, we coined the slogan, Welcome to Pleasure Tap. I know, I know. we're working on something like that, Palisade's getting all these these nice names. accolades and nicknames. But why did you say that at the market? Was there something specific that... I was just inspired by walking up and seeing all these people supporting all these great little vendors and farms. And uh, I, I like very much that we can buy our food the bulk of it in the summer and some of it all year from people that live up the street from us that we know personally. Yeah. What do you think the average person spends at the farmer's market? I would say that we spend probably about 50 to $70 a week. Okay. That's reasonable. Sometimes a little more. But you're loading up on groceries. But we're getting all of our produce for the week from Green Junction and some other stuff from various places like if there's a good bakery, we usually buy a loaf of bread. Like Kalina Lani, they have at Green Junction. We usually get a loaf of bread from them. Yeah, they're so, a Hawaiian uh, background kind of concept. Is that the name too, right? You can kind of tell. Yeah, tell exactly. And I believe the owner, I don't know her personally, but I uh, read online she spent some time on Big Island, lived there, had family there, something like that. Okay, makes but sense. the thing is, like, we're the kombucha. We're the only kombucha company there, so – in that sense, okay, but there's all these farmers competing against each other. As the farmers, I'm curious, how do you differentiate yourself? And then as a consumer, how do you pick between them? Like, why do you pick Green Junction, for example? A couple of reasons. They are organic. I think that's the biggest reason. Number two is that my wife, Alicia, who runs the food bank in Grand Junction uh, and owns a seed company, has built a relationship with them and some of the other farmers, including Field to Fork and Early Morning Orchards. So, you know, we're inclined to to patronize our friends, I think. Yeah, it's who you know, the, right? The other the thing is faces. that they they set their tent up right. You can kind of move through it like a line and then check out very easily with a credit card at the end. Like, I am horrible about carrying cash when I'm not abroad. So I'm unlikely to patronize somebody that's not going to take a card. And I understand... I understand that it costs money to to run cards, but I would rather pay that 4% fee myself than than not chop at your business. So, I that we we get we give our business to them, I think, because they make it easy. They have enough space, enough food and a very easy flow. Yeah, what are you of, looking uh, for getting in a vendor? In are there any tips for newbies like us? Like human flow, I guess is big. It's like the ability to get in without a huge line or is a line good because that means it's popular i mean a small line is probably a good thing yeah because you, you don't want to like walk up to a dead table you don't yeah you don't want to be <laughs> the guy that's sitting there like with your head on your on your hand yeah, like, it's like why is no one buying nothing. your lettuce all right <laughs> um, yeah i mean you guys seem to have a good setup you've got a bright tent you guys got your matching t-shirts on oh we're all you know organized. you got you can tell julia's been hard at work on that the was me man what are you kidding <laughs> nah yeah julia does everything for all that kind of stuff i just make the booch and she tells me where to stand yeah but yeah we just try and let our personalities come out you just want to be yourself and well that's good that's i mean that's why it works i think those are the vendors you're gonna do well is yeah. the people that are being themselves the hardest thing so. and someone warned us about this is that as you go along in the markets people recognize you, right? Because they come to you every week and they associate you with the brand, but you're there selling and you're seeing hundreds of people every day. Yeah. And so, of course, yeah, you get to know them over time, but like after the first week, people come up, like even this weekend that happened, people will come up, they're like, oh, hi, Will. It's great to see you. I'm like, 
I have no idea who you are. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but it, it does build that community. And that's cool you said that. Yeah. I think it's it's funny the people that you see that are there every week for years. And you can tell that they have got their formula dialed. Whereas I think there are, there are certain probably businesses or products that people sell that are just not you know, you might see some sales, but you're not going to crush it at a market because I can't speak to everybody, but we're not, we don't go to the market in Palisade looking to spend hundreds of dollars on like a fine piece of art or something like that. Are there vendors that sell and that much I, expensive art? I, I don't, I think so. I don't know. There are a lot of arts and crafts there, which I guess we've bought some stuff, but that's probably more aimed towards the tourists than the locals, I would think. Yeah, it's easier to have an impulse buy on an apricot than on a hundred dollar art piece or necklace or something like that. But it's interesting because I feel like with the Palisade market is we're kind of at this point where it's going to the next couple of years and maybe it's already happening. I'm sure that the longtime vendors would tell you that it is, is if, if it's going to be continued to be a farmer's market or if it's going to be a quote unquote farmer's market, that's mostly just like arts and crafts vendors. Oh yeah. So, you know, so are we going to remain as an authentic farmer's market where most of the vendors are selling produce or dairy or meat or wine or kombucha or whatever other goods that are made in Palisade that are consumables, or is it going to become mostly hipster products? Ah, okay. You know, which you go to a lot of the farmer's markets around the state and there'll be a few food and beverage vendors, but it's mostly other stuff. Like arts and crafts and birdhouses yeah. and yeah. things yeah. like that. Like, yeah, pottery, whatever. Have you ever been to the Apple Festival up in, um, blanking on the name now? Cedar uh, Ridge. Cedar Ridge, yes, yeah. thank you. Like that's either you're getting like carnival, hot dog, popcorn kind of vibe, or yeah. it's $100 art pieces. Yeah, like it's... And like I don't want to put that down because I think there's a place for that, but Palisade is an agricultural town you know and and what what's distinctive about palisades farmers market is that all of the vendors are from palisade all of the food vendors the farmers they're all from palisade and i was i was talking about this the other day i was representing the palisade tourism advisory board in boulder at a at a media event and i all of us from the different destinations had three minutes on the bus to to give our spiel about our town so i was talking about palisade and how you can go to any farmer's market around the state and you'll see vendors from Palisade there. And then you come to the one in Palisade and it's the same people. It's and all that's not true of any of the other places. You know, we actually have the people here that make all of these things themselves. Oh, that's interesting. Wait, so I thought you went for a media event for writing in Boulder. I was playing both sides of the coin. I had on my name tag, it said Palisade T- T- Tourism Board slash Matador Network. Oh, very nice, yeah. dude. Double do. Okay, so explain to me what you did. I, I didn't catch that then. You had to give a speech on a bus? Yeah, so it, it was basically a one-day press trip. They had, I think there was like, I don't know, eight or ten different destinations it was hosted by Boulder, so we toured the Boulder Farmer's Market, and then we went to a couple of farms, and then we had a farm dinner at a local orchard. And there were 15, I think, journalists there and 10 or so destinations. And so we all kind of just mingled throughout the day. And, like, of course, some of us all know each other. And there were several people from Colorado Tourism and uh, Handlebar, like Carly was there. Yeah, yeah. A bunch of people that all, all know each other were there. But So we each had three minutes on the bus to give our spiel. So I talked about 
the farmer's market story. I talked about the wineries. I talked about why I love Palisade as a place where you can get everything that people identify with Colorado is present in Palisade. You know, we have great outdoor access. We have small town vibes. We have beautiful mountains. We have high deserts. We have agriculture. We have wine. We have all of these things that you can get right here. Whereas in, I think anything else and anywhere else in Colorado, you either have front range, big city, you have mountain town or resort town vibes, but you can't get it all in one place. And Palisade is the one place where I think you can kind of get, except for the big city, you can get it all here. Standing you, ovation you on get the bus? Or you want. What, uh, I didn't get a standing ovation, but <laughs> I got a couple of giggles, and and everybody came up and talked to me about it afterwards. Cool. So, yeah, That's awesome. I, I think They're like, you're a travel cool. writer, and you decided to live here and join the tourism and, board? It yeah, must be cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I have I – have, I literally have no uh, no shades of gray in my conflict of interest zone. Apparently. Was was Grand Junction there, or Fruit? No, no. no. Uh, so we were lone representation of the Grand Valley. Lone Grand Valley, yeah. Um, there was a rep from Delta, um, Delta and Paonia, I believe. What was the Delta spiel? Uh, I I couldn't tell you. Yeah, what is? I mean, I know it couldn't tell you because after I gave my spiel, I was too busy fielding questions from oh, other writers. Oh, I see. Nice man. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. What do you think? Like, I don't know if so. Tourism is interesting right now. You spend a lot of time on the Facebook, the Palisade Facebook page. I don't spend any time on Facebook. Okay, good. Well, me either, really. But I get some reports, and then when I hear about the chatter, uh, I saw Jeff the other day, and he was telling me about some of it. There is like a lot of backlash on Facebook about the bikers and about how like the bikers are disrespectful and they don't stop at stop signs and there's all these stories of bikers oh yeah they like fall over drunk and they're just too out of control and I'm just thinking what town are you guys living in I don't see any of this and I'm pretty much right at the entrance of Palisade I don't know maybe if there's an area this goes on I really I I've never seen any biker fall over drunk I've okay all bikers run the stop signs whatever Well, funny, funny uh, aside to that is that it's now, it's now no longer required for bikers to come to a complete stop at stop signs if there isn't traffic present. If there isn't traffic present. Yeah. Okay. So if they're riding in front of you, for example, and you're coming to a four-way stop and there's no one at the intersection, they can just blow through it, whereas the car behind them would have to stop. That's my understanding. Right. But if someone's coming up to the stop sign in another direction, they clearly, you know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I just Do you see any drunk bikers? Like, I don't see any of this. I mean, I see bikers that have been drinking. There, I can only think of one specific occasion where I live on 6th and Peach, and I was walking with a buddy up to Fidel's. And a group of a group of of tourists were I don't even think they were biking, I think they were walking. But they were walking the other direction, like we were going towards downtown and they were coming away from it. And they were like st- they were stumbling and it was like still daylight outside. Really? Uh and you know, we kinda joked about it walking by them, but like they weren't causing a problem. They were I think they were probably walking back to the spoken vine or something. I don't know where they were going. But, yeah, but what do we expect? It's like on one hand, it's like, okay, well, you're here. You have to visit the wineries and go to the brewery. Like, we want you to spend your money. But then they get fucked up, and everyone's surprised. It's yeah. Like, well, I, uh, I mean, what do you want? They're walking. People are going to complain driving. about anything, you know. But yeah. the same people that are complaining are, the, are are loving their house value right now. And I'm sure that they're loving the slowly increasing ar- array of amenities that we have in our town. And, 
you know, the one thing that Palisade is doing correctly is that Palisade is its own entity and, and, and the vision of the tab is to help Palisade continue to define itself as its own entity, not a suburb of Grand Junction, not just a satellite town. We're not being overrun by suburban development, although I'm sure some people would argue that because there is development happening, but it's not nearly as bad as it is on the other side of the valley. And if anybody's been to the front range in the last three decades, we're at about a half of a percent of what they're dealing with up there. So overall, I think Palisade is doing about as good of a job as it can. Yeah, and now we have the moratorium on the on the new developments right. and stuff like that for a while. Right. But yeah, I just don't know what we expect. You can't be, I mean, obviously when you're a wine destination, people are going to get drunk. It's like, that's the whole point, really. I mean, okay, not to get blasted, but yeah. But you said something earlier before we came on air that interests me about a misconception that Palisade, the misconception is that Palisade is a family destination or that some people may carry that, like they're trying to appeal to families. But your argument would be that Palisade is not a family destination. And I had never thought of it that way. And I think that's spot on. Speak to that. A little. I think my argument would be the Palisade is not entirely a family destination in that Palisade is not a resort destination. Palisade is a destination for specific things for, for agritourism, for wine tourism, and for the outdoors. Palisade is not a let's come and lounge by the pool and, and let the kids run around at the water park kind of a place. And it's also not uh, let's go to the all-inclusive resort and just, you know, act like fools for a week. You know, Palisade is, a, is an active traveler's destination. Yeah. And, and a lot of families can, can vibe with that. But I think that the, the type of family that is going to go to the all-inclusive is probably not going to come to Palisade. Oh, definitely. But when you say agritourism, what does that mean? I mean, I know what it means. I'm in the travel space, right? Like agritourism is people coming to experience farm life and local products. But do we have agricultural agritourism experiences other than buying peaches? I mean, what do you... Well, there's the you pickets. There's the llamas. There's there There is some of that stuff... Do you think people are really coming? They're like, oh, yeah, let's go to the llama farm. And then I, think I guess the U-Pick tours. I think there's a segment of it. That, I don't yeah. think it's the bulk. And that's why I say I don't think that the overarching tourist that comes to Palisade, our archetypical tourist, is not a mother, father, and two kids. We don't have the lodging, really, for that uh, at scale. And we yeah, don't. We have two hotels, right? Yeah, we have two hotels. And we just aren't. There's nothing for them to do here we don't have enough restaurants we don't have the i don't know we just don't have the amenities yeah for you can't have a multi-generational we, family go to downtown palisade right. try and eat dinner it's we're like, not we're not breckenridge right yeah. we don't have resorts we don't have high-rise hotels we don't have kinder cares for the for parents to put their kids in while they're out yeah. and i think it's shopping, important to point out you know? like that's that's important to families you know you're a daddy now maybe you can tell me more but there's a tendency in tourism world to like frown upon that but you can totally understand why a family of five would want to go somewhere with some amenities and some convenience Absolutely. and ease. It's yeah. not like they're trying to be like a uppity or a, a, a weird traveler. They're just like, well, I got three freaking kids, so yeah. I don't want to work that hard every night when we go to dinner. I mean, I get it, but those and, – and, yeah, then there's a place for that. Yeah. But those aren't the people that you see at Palisade. Correct. Uh, those aren't the people that you see out at, at the distillery having dinner all right. the time. Yeah, no, Totally. I just think that's an interesting way to look at it because 
we consider ourselves a community, right? And a family community. And when you're in Palisade as a local, and so I, I just thought that was cool. You pointed it out. And the peaches are interesting because I don't know how much you guys on the tourism board promote them now. A lot of the farm stands are shipping peaches all over the state. You don't even have to come to Palisade anymore necessarily to get the peaches. You can get them in Denver. Whenever I go to the front range and I say I'm from Palisade, people say, oh, yeah, the peaches, right? Mm -hmm. So they recognize that branding, but usually they recognize it from their grocery store. It's not like they've been here or they've had to journey here to get them like the old days. Yeah. I wonder how that's impacted people or people literally being like, let's go out to Palisade from Denver and pick up some peaches. I mean, I think that that definitely happens. I, I think the future of tourism in Palisade is wine and oh, outdoor recreation. Wine with and, a bullet, and, man. And I, yeah. I think the outdoor recreation piece in particular, I think the, the Grand Valley as a whole, even beyond Palisade, is the perfect – it's the perfect example of a former extraction economy evolving into what its future is going to be as the global economy shifts away from fossil fuels. You know, the, the Grand Valley is is ground zero – one of many ground zeros in the American West for how that's going to play out. And, and, and places like Palisade and Fruta and Junction to a certain extent as well are leading that charge by embracing responsible outdoor recreation use and promoting leave no trace principles. Uh, we have something up on the visit Palisade website now about responsible use of, of public lands. And I think that that is going to play such a vital role in the future of jobs in this region and in the future of growth in this region for biking and hiking and camping and yeah yeah hunting rafting. fishing rafting whatever whatever skiing whatever it might be that is the future here and i i think it's great i think that there couldn't be a better way forward for places that value public lands as much as we do in colorado yeah, as long yeah. as they don't recreate where I recreate, I'm yeah. good with it, right? <laughs> right. That's always the travel Right, bug, as long right? as they yeah. don't have a speaker <laughs> blasting music on the trail. Right? Yeah. So what is this you guys have put up? Best practices, leave no trace, obviously, but do you say like, hey, like when you're hiking, maybe use headphones and don't have your rap music blasting or your classic rock blasting. Not everyone loves what you love. Right, right, right. And, and people escape to nature to escape. They don't escape to uh, have a jam sesh. Yeah. Exactly. And so you guys are pointing these things out on the site and promoting responsible travel. Yeah. And that's something I, you know, that's, I view my role on the tab as, as twofold. A, you know, I tend to handle a lot of the media, both to come to town and go into these events like the one in Boulder, because I work in that industry and I, I, I understand it. And B, promoting the responsible outdoor use and the conservation angle, because I, I firmly believe in it. Uh, I, I report on this at work as a, as a journalist on a regular basis, and I can speak very well to the economic benefit as well as the, the happiness that it brings to people. Well, not according to everyone. Uh, I read an article today that was entitled in The New Yorker, The Case Against Travel. It was perhaps one of the dumbest articles I've ever read. I couldn't believe that I was seeing it. I shared it with you. I'm mm -hmm. curious of your thoughts. First off, I'll just go on a little rant, I guess. I'm just so sick of being lectured. There was like a series. I was honestly in a pretty cranky mood this morning, just going through my reading. First off, my travel writing mentor, Bruce, I think you, I don't know if you've met him, but you've heard of him before. He sends me, he's probably in his 60s, and he's like an email forwarder. 
you know how you're like parents used to do that when you were younger they would just i don't know my dad did that he always forward me emails but bruce does this to me so it was like a string of articles that just made me like hate the world the first one national geographic is ending all their magazine now mm-hmm. they laid off all their staff writers like what an end of an era end of an era i think i mean I, it's not a huge surprise they'll still publish every month working with freelancers and i'm sure like everybody else they're probably going to be embracing generative ai to a certain degree i wouldn't be surprised at all ai writing the articles yeah or at least at least helping you're a big fan of that aren't you uh, I don't know if I'm a fan. I, I've I've kind of adopted the stance of on generative AI where I would have been fine if it would never have come along. But since it's here, I'm not going to be the person that runs into the corner and wishes that it's not here. You know, I'm going to embrace it because my career depends on it at this point. You you can you can uh, you can't stop technology from progressing. I think that's a fool's errand to to sit around and and wish that things wouldn't progress. And what we need to do now is harness it for good, and 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 learn how to incorporate it into our jobs and our lives in a way that creates value instead yeah. of taking value away. Okay. Well, I can see that from an individual standpoint. You know, you want to use it to help write your articles, to lighten your load, et cetera. But is it really a good thing that National Geographic is going to use AI to create stories now? Like, how does that help? That only helps their bottom line. The AI is just going to pull from other stories that have been written. There's not a unique perspective. Yeah. I mean, I doubt National Geographic is going to be straight up writing articles with AI. But I, I, and I don't know if or how they will use it. But... A lot of publications are using it right now to handle very simple news rights, news news uh, hits, research. Um, you use it at Matador? We do. Okay. Uh, we do, and it's something that it's not taking anybody's job. It's just shifting it. AI doesn't have a voice or human perspective. And uh, at this point in time, it's also inaccurate fair amount of the time and i don't know man i hear they're going to be voting soon yeah you know, maybe i like, read too many conservative sites or something but i see a lot of uh the ceos coming out saying that ai is going to be out of control and who knows what's going to happen it's i mean it's it's very much like the media to write those kind of stories it's sexy yeah i mean and, it, yeah, and it's certainly not even just on the right i mean i read the yeah. new york times regularly and they're always they they try to act like they're objectively covering ai but i mean just looking at the headlines is like this is not objective at all. Right, yeah. You know? But there is that fear factor with sure. it. That, and it's not even sure. about, oh, Terminator movies. It's just the jobs it could People take. People are afraid of their jobs. Right? And They're then, afraid to lose their jobs. But the, like, I even see stuff that it can like become alive and self-aware. I don't know how that would happen. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can't speak to that, and I, I, don't, I don't know. But I know that how I've used it and how I, I plan to continue using it is basically as a personal assistant. So you have ChatGPT. I've used ChatGPT. I have a I have a subscription to a service called Jasper, which is built off ChatGPT. So it's very similar, but it's designed specifically for content creation. But what does that interface look creation. like? So you sign up for it. You sign up for it. You can effectively enter keywords and uh, SEO info about what you want to create. It will put together what you ask it for. It'll put together a blog post. It'll put together an email campaign, it'll put together just a paragraph, it'll answer a question, whatever you need it to do, it'll it'll do. 
uh, and then you kind of you can kind of take it and tweak it and make it better and make it good. The way it's being used right now in in the media primarily is in the written media specifically is at, as like kind of a boilerplate service where it handles the boilerplate writing that is going to go into any article or or any kind of a description or or a uh, a sales pitch or something like that. And it's taking kind of that base repetitive work off the plate of the writer so that the writer can focus on doing proper research and, and, and reporting. Yeah, I've been there, man. I mean, some of this, like the base, like the nut graph, as we call it in journalism, right? right? That kind of stuff that where you have your interesting lead and then you move into the nut graph, which could be several paragraphs of just explaining what's happening, the the basics of the story. It's especially important if you're doing a follow-up to a story or something because you're explaining the backstory. And I could see how AI would be useful in just taking over that task so then, correct, a writer could focus more on the interesting parts of the article, quote-unquote. But it's a slippery slope, man. It's a slippery slope. Especially in today's media. As I said, I would have been fine if this would have never come along. But But like, what about like a – okay, so now in travel, right, we have all the top five lists, right? And – as we know, many of those articles are written by people who have never actually experienced those things. My favorite articles are the the world's 10 best beaches written by John Q. It's like, oh, John, really? Did you visit every beach in the world and come up John with this? John Q is probably from Colorado. He doesn't yeah. even live in a John's place never even been to any of the beaches. John went on you know, TripAdvisor and just cherry-picked or looked what other people had. They probably looked at Tim Wanger's story on a beach. and Yeah. It's like, oh, okay, I'm going to pick this one. You know what I'm saying? It's a lot of the stories that humans do now, even beyond just the basic nut graphs and stuff, could be written by AI because they're just sourcing it from the internet as well. Right. Are a you- lot. Uh, yeah. Are, you know this? I mean, and this is you just nailed it on the head by saying that what AI is going to replace is armchair journalism. Yeah. What AI is not going to replace is actual on the ground reporting. Uh, yeah, that's and, fair. And, that and, sense. and and you know people are worried about AI writing novels. To me, what's beautiful, and AI can probably write a novel, and maybe it's even a good one. I don't know. It probably but would what, be good. What I like about a novel is I like knowing about the writer and their background and why they wrote that book. Right. And like, without that, a, a novel is is only half of what it could have been. Yeah, like a Hemingway novel like, in part is great because you learn about the guy, Hemingway. Yeah, and, and, it, when and the more it. you know about Hemingway, the more you enjoy his writing. Yeah. Right? Because you're like, you see him in the story. Yeah. Totally. I get that. But aren't you, you know, you're an editor from Matador Network. You're running the travel section. So I'm sure you work with a lot of writers who are difficult. I mean, so much of being in the writing industry, as you know, it's not just about being a good writer. In fact, I would argue the most important part is just being reliable, hitting your deadlines, turning in clean copy. It's not about like in the beginning when I started travel writing, I used to, okay, let me write this so good. And Tim, my editor, he's going to be so impressed but most of the time when I tried to do that and go over the top, it seemed the editor was more annoyed because they're like, dude, all right, this is good. But now I got to like reorganize yeah, it, it down, man. and fix it. So I would just prefer you just turn in a clean copy that I can deal with, right? So aren't you tempted to just be like, why am I dealing with these writers if I could just have AI write like a base article and then I can tweak it? I mean, not really because as we've noted – AI can't speak from personal experience. And so even if an AI is writing a piece that 
somehow incorporates an experience of a place in it, that experience is just being pulled from elsewhere on the internet. Right, but does anybody care? Travel writers do that all the time anyway. Yeah, they do. And, Have you ever and, seen on Facebook when travel writers put out the call, they're like, I'm doing a story on spas in Berlin. If anybody has any good leads. Yeah. If anybody's like, ever been yeah, to Berlin. It's like, maybe you shouldn't be like writing to hear this story, from you. right? You're a phony. Yeah. You're writing a travel story about some place you know nothing about. But see, Great. like that's, that's what's going to be replaced, though, is that. Because now I no longer have to commission a writer and pay that person $200 to write that story. I can do that in the AI in half an hour. Right, that's what I'm saying, isn't that? But what I can't, re- and I would rather do that for, for crap, for armchair journalism, yes. But I still, and I think every editor, and probably even most readers, still like a good story, still like a good narrative. And like you can't take that away from the writer. You, you, you just can't. Do you think that's true? Yes. That people want to read narratives? I firmly believe that. As somebody who works with generative AI on a daily basis, I firmly believe that. Yeah, that people like want to read an authentic story and have the attention span to do it now? Yeah. Honestly, I think some of this short attention span nonsense is bullshit. You do? I don't think people's attention spans are that short. I think content is crap. I think that's part of the problem. Well, that's fair enough, yeah. I mean, a lot of the stories you wouldn't like, read I, I can't even I can't even <laughs> freaking watch TV because it gives me an anxiety attack. Like, of course I'm not going to sit there and watch 30 minutes of the nightly news. I, I want to freaking punch a hole in the wall after 30 seconds. Yeah, put you, you know? in a bad mood. It's horrible. No, I understand that. That makes sense. But it is here to stay, and it's going to yeah. keep growing. So you're going to use it for your business. Tell us more about your side gig. Yeah, so... For many years, since long before I was with Matador or on staff anywhere, have done copywriting and freelance journalism under the moniker of of Winger Media Services, formerly Inkwell Media Services, but then I got a cease and desist from Inkwell Media out of Boulder, which is a whole other story that we can get into. But actually, I don't know if I'm supposed to talk about it. Did they take (laughs) you to court? No, because I changed my name. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so I've always done a lot of freelance work, and, and everything I've ever done in my in my 13 years in the media has been on a contract basis, including Matador. So once I started playing around with Jasper and ChatGPT late last year, I started thinking, like, you know, this is a good opportunity to reframe my freelance work to take my name off of it and make it be more of a business so that I can hopefully build myself an asset as opposed to just having it be tied to buy Tim Winger. And how many articles you can actually write. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so one thing that I think generative AI is very good at is it will allow freelance writers to scale their work in order to make a living in a very competitive environment. Because how many $200 travel articles or whatever your topic of writing is, how many $200 articles do you have to write to make a living? you got to write a lot. And not only do you have to write them, you have to pitch them, you have to revise them, you have to research them. Like The, the hourly rate when you look at it from that Yeah, the payment does not, not include research, pitching, the whole right. formulation of it. Yeah. But incorporating generative AI can help a writer scale that so that it's not the, the pitching and some of the research isn't taking so much of their time. You know, there's certainly the argument, oh, this is just going to be used by companies to improve their bottom line. Yes. That's going to happen for yeah. sure. But 
it can also be embraced by the other side. You know, there's two sides to the coin. The individual, the freelancer, the the solopreneur, as so many of us are these days, can also use this t- for their own benefit. And, you know, I... I'm seeing it already in in my work where there are there's a dividing line of of people that have embraced that line of thought that are now making more money than they've ever made before and the people that are like no fuck this uh, I'm not using AI it's the devil and now they're out of work or they will be within 5 years uh, at least some of it I don't think you have to use it but I think it is to your benefit if you are a creative to at least have a basic understanding of how it works. That's a great point. I mean, that's that's a good case. Now, I have a question. Like, if you take the same program and you enter a prompt and it spits something out, if the next day you enter the same prompt, will the exact same thing come out or will it be different? It should, unless something drastic has happened. So does that open up a scare for you? Is it a, If you're doing business with someone and you enter a prompt, get something, of course, you're going to clean it up for yourself. But what if some competing company enters the same prompt? Or they is it going to be right. like plagiarism all over, where everybody's getting the same produced content? I mean, that's certainly a possibility. Yeah, I mean, the the most immediate implication of that would probably be a duplicate content penalty from Google that would just kill everybody's SEO. Got it. Yeah, I remember when I was in Santa Barbara before before I really got into travel writing, I was doing some freelance gigs, and this one guy hired me to work on his website. And it was all just copywriting, backwriting. He really wanted me to, quote, pepper in keywords. Yeah. It wasn't just writing of, okay, let me explain what this business does. It had to be really awkward with peppering in the keywords of the business. Top hotels in Santa Barbara. Yeah, stuff like that. He was more into economics and had like an economics business, but it was kind of the same vibe. Yeah. Where, And it was so tedious to write. I feel like for someone like him, having the AI resource would be great because right. – just write this boring copy that hammers the keywords for nothing. And that's the that's the gist of copy synergy. What I'm trying to do is is I'm not even really doing journalism with that. I will continue anything that has my byline on it will be written exclusively by me. I will never compromise my dignity like that. I'm trying to use this to do that because okay, so there there is the generative AI and a a business owner can use that can use ChatGPT or Bard or whatever it is to make their copy for their website and put it on there and they're all good. But most business owners are busy. They're not good writers. They don't have time to figure out how to master the prompts for these softwares. I know how to do it. So just hire my company to do it for you, to do this simple service for you. Yeah. Right. And that way, like it's creating value for the business owner. It's creating value for me. It's creating value for a writer that I'm hiring to to deliver the work. That to me is the positive implication of generative AI. And of course, you know, we could get into all day talking about the negatives because there are plenty of negatives. Sure. Like some people are going to lose their jobs because of AI. That's do you think there's any other negatives other than just job elimination? I mean, you read all these articles about open AI and Sam Altman calling like we need government regulation now before this, destroys the world and you know we will always maintain a turn off button for our software in case it gets out of control. I don't know enough about the technology. I'm not a I'm not a developer or a coder. So I can't really speak to what the firm dangers would be. I don't doubt that there are there there are those. But uh I can't really sit here and be like 
there's a 17% chance that uh, <laughs> a generative AI will throw the next presidential election or something like that. Like, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't think anybody knows, really. Yeah. Well, I just on a plane recently watched her. Have you ever seen that? Movie? I have seen her. Dude, that was crazy. And like that, it's funny how many conversations I've had about AI where that movie has come up. This is, in fact, the second podcast I've talked on where that has come up. And that was like the the best scene in that movie is when he realizes that the AI is dating like 17,000 other men at the same time yeah. or something like that. <laughs> Crushing. Yeah. Yeah, it's sad. It's kind of a sad movie in a lot of ways. Yeah. But I think it's super realistic, and I'm sure some people already have that kind of vibe, not necessarily with um, maybe like a smooth operator like is portrayed in that movie, but there are definitely ways to to have that artificial relationship already. And as the technology increases, I could see it. I could literally see it. And people are lonely. You know, some people are very, very lonely, and so they're probably very inclined to want to chat emotionally with yeah. anybody that will listen. Yeah. And I mean, it that, doesn't have to that be that anybody like, happens to be a bot. Then yeah. I mean, they take it to the extreme in that movie where remember they hire the girl to come in to like be the life form of yeah. the AI and the AI is talking to him in an earpiece, but he's having sex with the real girl or whatever. And she's pretending. And that's like her job. She, that's her business where yeah. she pretends like a stand in. I could honestly see that happening. Why wouldn't it? I mean, I could just see someone using it casually, like, you know what? I'm home alone tonight. I'm lonely. Just like any kind of porn site people log on to to feel connected or like the live chats that are right. offered now on a variety of websites. Right. Okay, I'm going to sign up for a half hour with this robot and feel good after. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I just I hope it doesn't make the robo calls any worse or the robo texts. Oh, yeah. The How telemarketing. Many, I mean, do you block all those phone numbers that come? Because I do. Every I block, day I, I block get like five phone numbers a day. I don't. I just hit the X. And I used to block them, but it never seemed to slow anything down. It definitely doesn't slow anything so down. I just, it just gives me like a half second of satisfaction. I'm like, oh, this guy's dead. What I really want to do, and, and I'd, I'd be curious to know your thoughts as somebody who also spends a fair amount of time abroad. I think all of these spam bot texting and calling, yada, yada, Makes me want to call Verizon and be like, look, can you just block any number that's not in my contacts from contacting my phone? And then the more I think about it, I'm like, we're probably five years away from these phone services not even being necessary. Because if you think about it, you can get on your computer or apps on your phone. You can call, you can text, you can send emails without even going through your phone provider at all, as long as you're on Wi-Fi true so like are verizon and t-mobile even going to be necessary a decade from now if they don't make drastic changes to their business model i don't think they will because right now you need a phone number for whatsapp zuckerberg could get rid of that requirement tomorrow where you wouldn't need a where you wouldn't phone need number. a phone you number. could just sign up with an account yeah and then call account to account yeah but wouldn't that get hacked too and that of just course it would in. but and it already is i get spam whatsapps all the time too why do like, humans suck why do why do people do this I, today i got a text message and it was it was just a photo of like a 16 year old girl in a dress like it's, really it's like who are these you people? got a photo yeah it was just a photo it's the first time that's happened i've never gotten a photo yeah me either Usually I get it's like some political spam, like someone signed up my phone number or whatever. I get the calls, but I never answer, so I don't know what about. But I know I've never gotten a call for something I actually need. 
all the spam stuff is just ridiculous. It's not like, hey, Will, do you want like a free case of beer a month? I'd be like, oh, I'm interested. Yeah. It's, more right, no, like, it's just a text message that says hi. Yeah. Or like, check out my pics with a link. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not clicking that. So what do you think the goal of these people are? What is it just for fun? I or mean, like, it? I feel like the goal is to scam old people that are vulnerable and don't understand Dude, technology. Dude, that's one of the crazy things but that's like, been happening. Did you hear about, like, the kidnapping stuff? No. So, essentially, they'll use AI to mimic your voice. So, oh, you have a podcast, yeah. right? right? No blackout dates for Matador Network. I suggest was, everyone it check it out. It was canceled. It was? It was canceled, yeah. You didn't tell me. It just happened. Oh, my God. Like, two weeks ago. Oh, shoot, dude. I'm sorry. It's you, okay. It was, it was, it was, it was, you know, it ran its course. Like, it's fine. The show was a success. It just, we didn't, we did three seasons and uh, kind of ran out of topics. Okay. But anyway. All right. Well, we'll carry, get back to on. that, but that's big news. I'm, I'm sorry for you on that. But your podcast is out there, right? It's so they there. can get your voice, mimic it with AI, and then what they do is they'll call your mom and use your voice and you'll be like, mom, I'm held hostage right now by these people and it sounds just like you, it talks like you, and they'll try uh, and convince your mom to wire them. My mom would them. totally believe that, too. Dude, it was a huge news story. This just happened. Luckily, the mom somehow figured it out and never sent the money, and then it was all these news stories of, like, talk to your kids and figure out, like, a key phrase that you'll say if you're actually kidnapped to prevent this. But this is, like, a new scam where they can literally mimic – my mom would wire the money in a heartbeat. Right. She's, like, a paranoid Italian mother. That's scary. That's like a huge scam. Yeah. That's crazy. But hopefully your mom, I don't know. I feel like your mom would know you well enough to like, if she's in conversation and you're on the phone to like, know like, that's not what Will would say. And I don't know, like, man. I like, think because they can have like, this happened to Joe Rogan just because there's like so much of his voice. It depends on how much of your voice is out there, right? If they have a 10 second clip, yeah, they can't get your inflection and the way you talk. Yeah. But for you, you have three seasons of your podcast if they wanted to run that, they, they, could, yeah, they could and get how you would usually say something. Plus, your mom's going to be stressed out. I don't think she's really going to think – she might be skeptical but also nervous and just make a bad decision. Yeah. Right? In fact, you know, the first time – this is the second time we're recording. The first time I effed it up and it came out horrible. We had disruptions, yada, yada. But one of the ways I tried to fix it was at your recommendation, I went on Fiverr because I think you were the one to tell me about Fiverr. And I got an audio engineer to, to mess with it. Yeah. And one of the ways he, he was like, well, the recording shit, there's no way we're going to fix it. But what I did was I was able to use some of the recording and get your voices and I inputted it into my AI. No shit. Whatever that means. And so I got to let you listen to it. But he produced our podcast, the official one, with robots mimicking our voices. Oh, I want to hear and that. And that was like, and I. Did okay, it sound good? It didn't sound great. It sound like I guess if you didn't know us, you'd be. It sounded very mechanical, right? So it didn't sound quite naturally. I don't know. It was pretty impressive, and I gave him a standing applause for like, "Wow, dude, good solution." Because a lot of the people on there were like, "Nah, sorry, the recording's too beat up. I can't help you. I mean, I can raise the volume, but it's still going to sound this way or whatever. It'll be yeah. staticky." And so this at least guy, this guy was like innovative. He oh yeah, he was that. like, "Oh okay, well I got a solution," and yeah, he did it. And so it's we sound very robotic. But it's it's us, but our mimicked voices. Interesting. So they can do this kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, I as nerdy as it is, I'm a huge Blink-182 fan, and I saw... That's not nerdy, man. That's like you were the cool guy in high school. Uh, uh, yeah. You got yeah. all the chicks. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Man, I should have gone to your high school. Uh, <laughs> I went to an all-guys high school, no, no. so <laughs> we didn't get any chicks. Uh, but on Instagram the other day, there was this, this uh, page posted of like, look, it's Tom DeLonge singing Damn It, which is a song that Mark Hoppus sings. And I listened to it, and it was like I immediately knew. I was like, this is AI. This is not Tom DeLonge. Like, Tom DeLonge has a very, for those of you not familiar, a very distinctive nasally voice. Uh, and this had that, but it's it just it wasn't him. And, and like, if you know their music, you know that it wasn't him, right? Yeah. And like, I I don't know, I don't know if the technology is quite where it needs to be. Have you seen the deep fakes? I you know, somebody fake? sent me yeah. uh, the deep fake like TikTok Obama channel. Yeah, oh, I'm sure Obama. I'm yeah. sure every president has them. But I, I somebody sent me uh, the TikTok channel of a deep fake Tom Cruise, and it was like Tom Cruise saying all this ridiculous nonsense. It was pretty funny, actually. Yeah, but that's scary. But Some it of is. Them. Yeah, the one I saw from scary. Obama was like, okay, if you were just – yeah, of course, if you like deeply analyze it, you might be like, okay, this is fake. But if you're just in passing, seeing it, could be real. Yeah. You know? And how, how bad are people going to think about and, it? And then and who's going to weaponize these yeah, things? Yeah, and that's, that's, the, that's to me probably the worst – short-term thing that's going to happen as a result of AI is deep fakes. And like, there's got to be some sort of regulation. Like uh, imagine election season with deep fakes. Yeah. Do you want another one? Do you want to? I'm okay at the moment. Uh, There's got to be some sort of regulation that criminalizes deep fakes of public personalities or maybe even more importantly, private personalities, like private people there. There's got to be regulation surrounding that. And I think that's, now that I think about it, that's probably this type of stuff that Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenEye, that made ChatGPT, that's probably what he's talking about when he's going to Congress and is like, look, we need regulation. Like, we need the government to step in. And, like, I'm, I applaud him for that. I don't – maybe the guy's great. Maybe he's not. I don't know. But he's handling the situation a hell of a lot better than all the social media titans did by just fighting everything, you know. And being like, no, free speech, free speech. Like, fuck free speech if people are getting hurt. You can't just rip people off. Yeah, you can't roll, so, yell fire in a building, right, or right. whatever. There are some limitations to free yeah. speech. And there are consequences to free speech, which what I believe in. It's like you can say whatever you want, but if someone punches you in the face because of it, well, hey, yeah. man, you know. Exactly. Free free speech. What do you think about this new Twitter that's come out? It's I, it's by Threads. Threads, yeah. I have no no. Uh, Julia was all no over it. She's like, "We got to start that. one for the Pally Booch, and you should get one for the podcast." I'm like, "I'm still figuring out Instagram. <laughs> I don't know what to do." I mean, I don't know. I I guess if you're into social media and like take value from it, I I think I've become so jaded about social media that. I was just like, eh, whatever, I'm not going to sign up. Yeah, but like the early adopters always seem to win. I remember, I'm sure you do too, like going back to the early days of travel writing, people would have a business Facebook page, right? I was traditional journalism model and I would have these journalists, quote unquote, come on these tours, but they would only be like posting through their Facebook page, but they had a following. And then when Instagram was created, the people that like were the first adapters to Instagram got all these followers and it's a show and a sham, but they, you know, were able to use that for some street cred and to some cachet. So I'm like, yeah. well, should I just hop on threads? And but that's not really my personality. It's not like I'm, you know, like you were talking with the AI people. 
you don't want to be someone to reject it and say, oh, whatever. I don't really feel that way about technology. It's just I know it's not my personality to go for it. Like I, right. I've tried to use Facebook and Instagram for business. It doesn't bring me pleasure. And yeah, I know the, the utility. Way. So yeah, like adopting AI is probably smart for me and I know it would bring me business, but I don't necessarily see it as something that would bring me happiness. So there's a distinction there, right? Um, sure. So I, it's not like I try and poo poo it all, but yeah, now there's like a new one. How many have we seen come and go in our lifetime? MySpace came and gone and right. Twitter's basically dead. Trump's got his truth social, never been on there, but that exists. Now Instagram, now threads. I mean, how many do we need? Facebook is not really even relevant anymore unless you, I I use it kind of as a marketplace buy, like sell my bed or something like that or check in on the town gossip apparently, the Palisade Facebook page. Yeah, maybe I should get more in on the town gossip. It's not worth it, man. It's really just not, it's just, it's the typical social media where like a legitimate topic might be raised, but then just the discourse is not there. Right. Right. It's just people hurling insults or like not really responding intelligently or just whatever, man, you know, yeah. it's fun. It's like, if you're bored, I guess it's like a substitute for calling an AI bot. It is the AI bot of our generation. It's the AI bot I'm bored. Let me get on Instagram yeah. and scroll and see what else is going on. Did you know what I've been doing lately? It, on occasion, I guess when I'm like super bored at night or something is I've been going through like my old Facebook posts from like 2010 and just like deleting. shit. (laughs) I must be horrifying. Yeah. Like, like a record of who you were and what you did. What do you, any gems you found? Uh, it was mostly just me promoting my band, Mm. you know? Yeah. Tell us about the (laughs) rock and roll days, buddy. Mostly just me being a, uh, uh, self promotional douche. Wait, it's just like your shows? like Yeah, just well, promoting my shows, promoting my articles. Like I used to share my articles a lot, which I, I hardly ever do anymore. Isn't that funny, man? Um, I but, did that. Let, let's. I, I'm interested to talk a little bit about the early days of travel writing with you because I mentioned my mentor, Bruce. One of the things he forwarded was actually something he's working on. He was, uh, he was being a little get off my, my lawn about just how – social media, AI, things like this are changing travel writing, but also what an impact it's had on his life, being able to use his job to travel around the world. And he makes a pretty funny comparison. He's like, you know, one day I'm at a five-star luxury resort, like a king, and I'm rubbing shoulders with all these rich people who think I'm important. And the next day I'm opening a can of SpaghettiOs at home, like back to reality and writing my story for 50 bucks, right? So it's this really weird bizarro life that we get ourselves into but that aside i remember the early days too like you as a freelancer you have to do that self-promotion yeah like i would share pictures and articles and it's not necessarily how many likes you're gonna get would matter but it's also just like you're promoting yourself as like no i'm a, I'm a professional writer like i promise you i am yeah like, and you have to keep reinforcing that yeah yeah I, I hear that and that yeah I, I used to do it all the time right and but, i had i also had like the business page of myself uh that i would share stuff tim on. wenger yeah. the business it was called i think i, I was it was named winger media services nice um, yeah i did yeah. wake and wander that was my shtick yeah uh, but yeah i would get so obsessed with like oh, okay my article ran so i got to post it or i'm here in this place and okay well i have to post a picture today so people know i'm here and now they're gonna like follow along with what i'm doing the next few days 
it's weird. It's just a weird environment because on one hand, it is very beneficial. It helps you. It legitimizes you to – it was almost like the website at the time. Like no editor necessarily was going to go to – I don't know. If they were going to research you, they were going to look at your social media. Maybe go to your website, but it was easy just to go to your social media. They could see all your clips, see that you're on the road, and it's like, okay, this guy looks legit. He just pitched me, whatever. Yeah, I mean, I think there was something to that, and I, I'm, I'm wondering now, and this is something that's just come to me, is I wonder if that's like the sign that you've gotten to like the mid level, is when you no longer really feel the need to do that so much. I think so. Because like yeah. now, and and like in my own self-absorbedness, I will share on Instagram, like the big things. Like I will share like the assignment every quarter or four or five months or whatever that I'm really proud of, or that is in a new publication that I've never written for before, but I don't share what happens every day at all. Right. Yeah. Whereas I used to do that. And you know, one thing I used to do is, you know, there used to be those like publications would have like the social media, buttons at the top of the articles and it would show how many people have yes, liked. Yes. Yeah. So I would share it on Facebook and then I, I was an admin on like my business page and my band page and I, I, I would go and I would like it from as many things as possible. Ugh. And then I would like share it on those pages and like it again from all the same pages and then it would it would be able, I would be able to get like sixty likes just myself from like sharing it on these like five or six different pages and then liking it from each one on every one. Dude, what a cycle. Yeah. What did you think that was going to do for you? I was like, if I can get a hundred likes on all of my articles on Facebook and it shows it there, like the editors are going to think I'm, I'm, my articles are really blowing up. It looks legit. Yeah. yeah. Did editors ever care? I doubt it. No. Yeah. I used to have the same fantasy visions. I used to think, oh, well, once I write for like, outside magazine then editors are just going to reach out to me like I, i'm not even gonna have to pitch work like once they see my byline there yeah that's not how the industry works nobody gives a shit what you're doing <laughs> really they just want to make sure well you're an editor so you tell me but my perception is always just like they when i was an assistant editor at Condé Nast, i just wanted to work with people that wouldn't make my day more difficult yeah. Like I had a vision, exactly somebody right. was going to be published. It didn't have to be the best person or this. It just had to be someone who was going to make my job smooth and easy. Handed in on time, handed in clean. Yeah, that's what you the said most important you were thing. Do. And like for the writer, it really comes down to just being in the right place at the right time a lot. Like, yeah. How did you get into travel writing? Before I was in travel writing, I was an editor at a music magazine in Denver. And that's when you were doing your From, band? Yeah, well, yeah, I was doing the band before that. You played guitar, right? Mm -hmm. And were you playing, you said you were a Blink-182 fan, so are you doing punk rock? Yeah, I was like ska punk. Yeah, we had a trombone player, and there was four of us. But yeah, we we did that for a long time, like 10 years. It's a long, long time to do something like that. Based out of Durango, right? Based out of Durango and then Denver, although Durango was always kind of our, our home. It's a great thing to do when you're in your 20s. Not Not such a great thing to do when you're older than that. Yeah, I think like if you were going to court a woman, the only worst thing you could do other than travel writing would be playing in a rock band. When you're like over the age of 30. Yeah, in yeah. terms of uh, your appeal to people. <laughs> yeah, when you're when you're 22, it's 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 cool. You can it doesn't matter what night of the week you're playing. Everybody'll come out and watch you and, you know, you go on tour and you're sleeping in a van and it's hot and sweaty and gross, but you're having the time of your life. By the time you get to be 30, you're like, this is horrible. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to make, like, it's, I can't keep a job at home because I'm gone so much. It's just, it's just the lifestyle, man. Yeah. 
it's I don't like, want to be at bars until two every night. I don't want to be drinking every night like this. Like it's just you can't do. You can. It's a great thing to do when you're in your twenties. I saw that as like how my travel writing changed. Now I we both still travel, right? We pick our trips and we do it. But in your twenties, it's like go anywhere, anytime. Tuesday through Friday, sure, yeah. Oh, show on Wednesday, drinking, going out, whatever. Yeah. Like it didn't matter because you were so flexible. Now it's like, wait, it's a press trip to Vegas from Monday through Wednesday. So, oh, man, I could, do I want to go out Tuesday like, night? Like, right. God, I'm so soft now. Vegas. Oh. Right. Yeah. <laughs> There's a destination that'll split the room in half. Vegas. I mean, Vegas is great for 48 hours. I, I don't know. I just. Uh, That's my rule. Two you, days and out. Right. The last time go I was hard, there, and it's been a while. I think the last time I was there was 2017, but it was a totally different experience. I was there for a conference, and so I wasn't like – I wasn't there to party. Like contrast, the time before that, I was there for a bachelor party. So it was a completely, completely different Vegas experience. Night you know? and day. Like, yeah. See, I don't gamble either. So I, can't, I don't either. I, I can't. Get I'll bet on gambling. a sports event usually. So that'll be my. I'll bet twenty bucks on like some three team parlay that can win me five hundred bucks if it happens. And if I lose, I lose twenty bucks. But I can't sit at a blackjack table or roulette. I get so much anxiety. I don't yeah. care if it's 50 bucks. Like, I, I want to keep it. Yeah. At least the games, I can sit there and watch it and enjoy it for a couple hours, not lose it in two seconds. Maybe I should dabble in that because I've, I've never – I don't like gambling at all. I, I've, I'll do it when I'm there. I'll spend 20 bucks or something or 50 bucks over the course of a night. But, like, I'm way too frugal to spend more than 50 bucks on – Gambling. Yeah, but what are you going to do? Like for 20 bucks, you and sit like, at a blackjack table. It's usually $10 minimum. Even if you five $5 minimum, that's four hands. Good luck. Right. Then you're done. And yeah. like then <laughs> like the rumor is you get all these free drinks, but that's not true. It doesn't take – it takes too long. I've never gotten any – I've gotten maybe one free drink ever in Vegas, and like all the rest of them cost like $14. Yeah. I get them slow playing the slots. That's it. If you sit there and like, okay, I'll pull. They come up, take your drink. They take 15 minutes to come. It's like they're, they're not rushing you no, to get your free drink. No, they want you to wait. Yeah, you're going to wait there, right? And so usually, yeah, if I sit down at a blackjack table, by the time the drink comes, I'm done. Yeah. Like I'm not going on a heater or anything like that. But Vegas is becoming kind of a legit city, right? They got the Raiders. They keep stealing teams from Oakland. They're going right? to get a baseball they're gonna team. Get the, yeah. They're going to get the A's now. Yeah, it seems that way. I don't know if it's official, but it seems very likely they're going to get a baseball team now. They have the NASCAR track. And it seems a very unsustainable place to be building a major city, right? It's, it's the like one thing. definition of an unsustainable. It's yeah. Maybe the only more unsustainable place is Phoenix. Yeah, but Phoenix has been there, right? So yeah. it's like, okay, well, it's there, sustain it, whatever. But they're actively making Vegas a bigger place yeah. when it's. When it doesn't have any water. Yeah, it has no resources, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. What do you think of all that news? Uh, I know you're very into sustainability. You recently were featured on the news for solar, getting in the Grand Valley. Yeah, your cameo. And it's funny. I I have in during COVID we put solar panels on our roof, and I've now been I've been in the Sentinel because of this. And my wife got was on the on the front page her photo because I was out of town on a on a work trip. <laughs> When the, when the writer came over, so they put her on, and she still hates me for that. Uh, <laughs> Wait, she hates you, or you hate her? She she did not want to be in the photo on the front page of the Sentinel. Oh come on! Uh, got to lead with your better half, bro. You, right, that's yeah. what I said. But so we've got we've been in the Sentinel, and we were and we were featured in a commercial, and now we have been on uh, on uh, 
K-Rex. K-Rex came to my house, the, the local TV station, okay. to interview us about solar power. It's, pre- it's pretty funny. I mean, I know, like... Are they getting paid for these spots? Like, why is everyone... Uh, well, I, I got the panels by signing up with a local co-op called uh, Solar United Neighbors that basically bands people together so that they can all get bulk pricing on solar panels for their house. Okay, yeah. And given what I do for a living, they have reached out to me multiple times to, like, talk to the press about the co-op. So They know I, you'll be a good interview. Yeah, I've always been yeah. willing to do it. So, like, they – yeah, there's been – Film crews at my house twice, like flying drones above my solar panels. And no like, kidding. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Yeah. Well, what do you think about this doom and gloom with the Colorado River and like and Palisades part in it? Like, aren't we sucking up the water here to grow grow vines and stuff? Uh, I mean, sure, we are. I mean, we live in a in a high desert microclimate that uh, we're fortunate that we have this this river, or else none of us would even be here. But I don't see that development. Uh, and and civilization along the sides of the river uh, where Palisade is uh, is inherently the problem. Like, you know, of course, irrigation takes a lot of water and ag uses a lot of water. To me, the issue is endless suburban expansion in places like Phoenix and places like Vegas and Denver, places that just Suburban expansion, regardless of whether the water's from the Colorado or not, suburban expansion is the worst thing that could ever possibly happen because it's low density. It requires people to drive in a car every time they need to do anything. And the homes tend to be built on properties that you that are, are energy intensive, whether that be watering grass, which is a completely pointless plant, whether it be living in a giant house for a family of three people uh, with a finished basement and, all, and and two cars and three cars, all this stuff. It just – suburban sprawl has got to be reined in, and the suburbs have got to be densified. And what does that mean? More high-rises and – More apartment buildings, schools, shopping, restaurants, and, and food production closer to where people live. The 15-minute city concept should be embraced, which there are a lot of places that are doing this. It's not all doom and gloom. I, I really don't embrace a doom and gloom outlook. Um, and you're in the media. Wow. Yeah, that's why I don't, work, that's why I don't work for the New York Times. <laughs> um, well, so what you're saying is it's either live in a major city where it's high density and, and you can get things easily via foot and bike and public transit or live in a small town like Palisade where – it's not a suburban sprawl, but it's a small town where you can, again can easily access things, and and that's as opposed to yeah. I think that's a manageable step that middle class people can take in many circumstances. Of course, a lot of people are tied to a place by their job, but if you work in downtown Denver, you don't need to live in Highlands Ranch. That's completely ridiculous. There's no justification for that. Simple, basic things that if people sat down and calculated the amount of money and time that they waste on things like commuting and rush hour traffic when you could move closer to work, I, I don't know. Like I, I encourage people to read Mr. Money Mustache. Go to MrMoneyMustache.com and read that. He what pretty is much that? It's, it's a book? He's a financial blogger, but what he talks about is – He's a big advocate of bike commuting. He's a big advocate of living near what you do. Basically, 
he uh, elaborates more fluently than what I have done here <laughs> what I'm trying to say and has been doing so for, you know, 15 years or something like that. So, I, I mean, I see that as I see that as one way forward is densifying the places where people live and fuck NIMBYs. What's that? NIMBY? Not in my backyard. People, you know. Oh. <laughs> People, oh, who people that don't want the apartment complex built up the street from their suburban box house. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, don't you have grass? Do you water your grass? I do have grass. I, Come I, on, I, bro. I regretfully water have it. grass. We've cut down about 30% of it since we bought our house. I would like to seroscape the property. Well, here's a question. We, we this, haven't this done This could it, be a stupid but. question. But doesn't grass, like having a plant growing, produce more oxygen and more goodness or just the water it takes to sustain it doesn't even out like i mean in a place like in a place like the grand valley the water that's that's used that's used to sustain that is never gonna never gonna be offset when you're using water to produce food or to produce something of value that's a whole nother story but just to, to to make your lawn look perfectly green but one could argue that like wine is it really necessary sure it's a cash crop it makes people money but is it good for the longevity of the planet yeah maybe not depends on how you look at it i guess yeah Yeah. i just these conversations are so hard right because everyone has that the one thing right it's like oh well this is okay but that's not okay yeah sure you know and 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 i'm guilty of that i'm i'm just as guilty of that as everybody else and and i'll admit that you know like i love i love commuting by e-bike i take the bus a lot from Palisade into Junction and Clifton, even though I Oh, dude, I you have really practice what you preach. I got to say, when uh, remember when we went to the Grand Junction Rockies? Yeah, I know. I made you, you take, made the the bus. take the bus. And it took like an hour and a half to get yeah. down there. Well, my plan <laughs> well, my plan was that we were going to drink beer the whole way on the bus, but I don't think we had any beer. You can't be that kind of guy on the bus. Then you make everyone dude, else nervous. That's why you have a water bottle, though. You put it in the I water see. bottle. Okay, well, I'll take the bus again. I'd love to go to another <laughs> game that jackalopes now or whatever jackalopes, they are baby. but yeah i do remember that we did go to wrigley the bar we did go to wrigley yeah, yeah that which was, cool. was great but i remember it took we got a ride home so i remember it took us like an hour and a half to get there and then 20 minutes to get home right yeah but it was a good experience and you do pra- i respect you for that you practice what you preach i try i'm not perfect but like i i i view it as my responsibility as somebody of middle class means to to do what i can to to help and to to ride my bike and you know we we bought an EV this year with using the the tax credits from the IRA that will come in next year. What's up with the bike lanes in Palisade? I saw that you wrote a beautiful letter in support of the roundabout at Highway <laughs> Six and Alberta. Yeah. I th- I think the town of Palisade staff probably thinks I'm crazy, but <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, here's so Tim there. Again. <laughs> yeah, there was a public comment period or something for Alberta and Highway Six. You know that intersection there is terrible with the frontage road and the traffic, particularly if you're on a bike. It's it's just awkward because there's people coming from multiple ways and stuff. It's hard to make a left. Too. And so yeah. I pr- I proposed a zebra circle, which is a traffic circle with a bike lane going around the outside of the circle, a dedicated bike lane. And the bike lane has the right-of-way, right? Uh, oh, of course. But in a traffic circle, pretty much everybody has a right-of-way. There's no stop sign, so you're just kind of watching the traffic and maneuvering. Yeah. So the bike lane shouldn't inherently interfere with the, the traffic flow, and it's not like the traffic's that heavy that it would anyway. But I proposed that as a solution to 
what is now a one, two, three, four, five point intersection, right? There's there's the highway, and then there's which is one, two points. Then there's the frontage road, which is one, two points, and then there's Alberta Avenue, which is one. So you have five. You have traffic coming in from five different places, four of which are going parallel to each other. Yeah. So it's super awkward yeah. if you're on a bike. So are they going to do this? Is this project I, approved? I have no idea. Okay. But I think but they that are was my public comment that I submitted. To have the bike. I submitted the zebra, zebra lane. It's called a zebra lane. And that's a bike lane. And coincidentally, I had just heard of the zebra lane that day. I was reading. <laughs> I followed like this these nerdy Dutch uh, bicycle sites and <laughs> dirty <laughs> Dutch bicycle. Sites. One of them was talking hey man, about zebra lanes, thing, and I was like, know. "We need a zebra lane in Palisades." So I proposed it when that email came in. Interesting. Why? Why don't we have more bike lanes in Palisade? It seems pretty straightforward. We want it. We're literally actively courting bikers. Yeah. But yet, we don't have the infrastructure for them to ride safely. It makes yeah. No I sense. mean, it's it's it's. It seems like it's better than it's been. I mean, we do on, what is it, 3rd Street coming into downtown there. Um, and we do, there is that on the highway now. Go, It's only a couple of blocks long, but past but uh, the Veterans Fruit Wine Byway, Park. for example, does not. But that's not the town, so the town yeah. can't do that. Those are county roads. Oh, okay. Um, so the county or, the, or CDOT would have to step in, depending on which road it is. So the town of Palisades jurisdiction is only, you know, what is it, one square mile? Yeah, so that wouldn't make a difference so, really anyway. The biggest issue is, well, I guess like coming in, like from the wine country in, for example, a lot of people want to bike from there or should be encouraged to bike from there, but mm-hmm. that's its own shit show up there. Yeah, and that and it's a high traffic area because yeah. of the on-ramp. Right, that's what I mean. Uh, so that should have kind of a bike lane coming down Alberta, guiding you into town or – yeah, even like turning off some of the roads to go back where Carboy is or the Blue Barrel and uh, Red Fox. There could definitely be – those roads are much chiller. I don't think it's a big deal. But it seems like from looking at Facebook and hearing people, people are so irritated by bikers for some reason. So it feels like it's a problem that would just some, mitigate some town drama to make it easier to bike around. I mean, I f- – Mark, the pedicab guy, I haven't had him on yet, but I plan to – I can't imagine the stories he has of abuse he's taken. I just I suspect that it's like everything else where there are a few people that are just very vocal anti-bikes. Like I doubt we live in a we live in an area where bike commuting is commonplace and bicycling plays a major role in the economy of this valley. So I I can't imagine that it's any sort of a majority opinion against these bikers. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably just one or two people out of 3,000 that make a stink of it. Yeah. Right? That, that. But there are those haters out there. Remember course, the... Uh, but the haters are going to hate. You know, there's always going to be haters. There's always going to be haters. I know. And whatever we do. Should we take a pee break? How you feeling? Yeah, let's do it. Then right. I know we, we kind of veered off track from the how I got into travel writing. That, I, that's bound to happen. I went on a rant, but... You know. No worries. All right. We'll be back. And we're back. I'm looking at this case against travel article. I mean, I I understand the point he's making that, you know, travel, we travel to discover ourselves and a new and become a new person and bring out the best in ourselves. But the opposite ends up happening a lot. I would counter that travel, despite its carbon footprint and despite over tourism, 
when properly managed and properly executed, travel is a force for good in the world, not only because of its economic benefit, but because it builds tolerance and empathy. I think it's impossible to it's impossible to understand why things that you've never understood need to be protected. And the best way to gain that wisdom is to read about it and then go there. And of course, you know, travel should be conducted in a responsible manner and 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 you should patronize local businesses instead of going to McDonald's and yada yada. Of course, travel can be very bad and there are there it, it's an imperfect it's an imperfect activity just as everything else is, but I'd say the net benefit of people getting out of their backyards and seeing the world is a good thing. Dude, 100%. I think you're being way too generous. First off, let me say, this guy that wrote this, he's a total kook. What the fuck is he talking about? <laughs> this is the worst article I've ever read. This I mean, is it, like, it doesn't really make his case very well, dude, to be this honest. Is like, it immediately, it immediately brings fact, to mind what I just said. The fact that this was written in The New Yorker is just a total embarrassment. I cannot believe they published this, not only for its angle, but for the way it's written, it does not make the case at all. For the publication that first broke Anthony Bourdain, how could they publish something like Correct. this? Correct. And I'm going to post this. Like I'll have to post it at some point so the readers can see it. But it's called The Case Against Travel in The New Yorker. You'll easily find it. And most of his case is made by quoting like ancient philosophers, first off. So you know you're digging deep already. Let me read this to you because this is what really set me off. He's not even arguing that travel can be bad because of over-tourism or the complications or people not respecting. Like that's all wrapped up into the travel writing and, and not travel writing, in the, in the travel world. Yeah, like there's good travelers, there's bad travelers, there's people who want to go to a resort, there's people who want to go to Vegas, there's people that want to go on whatever platform, right? That's really not my problem. Like I get it. This is what he says though. He's arguing that travel doesn't change you. He says, travel is fun, so it's not mysterious that we like it. What is, is being italicized, because he's really serious. What is mysterious is why we imbue it with a vast significance, an aura of virtue. What the fuck are you talking about, man? Travel changed my life. Me too. Every time I take a trip, it changes my perspective. It changes the way I look at myself. It changes the way I look at where I'm from. It changes the way I look at the people I've... All growing up, I learned that Germany was a horrible country in World War II who was responsible for the Holocaust, who were a bunch of assholes. And then I went to Germany. And I was like, wow, Germany is one of the coolest countries I've ever been to. The people are all nice. It's so efficient. It's beautiful. It's like, wow, they've really turned their stuff around. The way you learn about reality is to see reality. I'm really into explorer books. I read all these. Right now, I'm reading a book of Darwin and his Adventure on the Beagle when he is came up with shirt? the origin of species. Oh, this is an REI shirt. Oh, okay. You know, repping brands these days. But, yeah, it's like we have been exploring this world since the dawn of time. These examples he gives of a couple going to Mexico who has a really good time at a local festival, and then they go home and tell their neighbors, and they want to bring the neighbors back to Mexico to, to experience what they experience. But when they come back... They're more focused on how their neighbors, whether their neighbors like it or not, versus the experience. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. It's not even a real example. No, like, the headline, like there could have been a much better article written underneath this headline. 
that maybe made it. I would still disagree with the case that it made, but it could have been a better case than this. This is this is not a good case. I mean, it, travel, in fact, does change you. You know, it I mean, does. I could I could share so many stories, but I, I I'll, I'll hone in on. In the summer of 2017, I spent a month in Bali by myself. I had been for years at that point struggling, and I know Bali is a very cliche place to have a life-changing experience, but it wasn't so much the location as just the fact that I was out there by myself with my wife and everybody I knew at home. But I had been for years trying to figure out how to move on from my 20s and from, you know, a lifestyle that was more reckless and and become healthier and not drink as much. I was trying to figure out how to, for all intents and purposes, cut back on drinking and stick to that. And I had been really struggling to do that at home. And going somewhere that was completely different, where I didn't speak the language or know a single person or know... I mean, I had done research on it and, and understood a little bit, but going somewhere is so different than researching it. Being in a place where the culture just didn't revolve around any of the things that my my culture and social life at home do was the key to that happening. It was the key to my success in that endeavor that I was struggling with at home. And that is one small case of travel changing my life. Yeah, I like, feel like this guy was like he went on a, a solo backpacking trip didn't make any friends. No one liked him. He went on some touristy adventures, like rode a camel somewhere, and then was like, oh, I don't think I was really changed. This is literally the worst article I've ever read, and it really bothers me. I could see the headline being the case against vacationing and making an argument for, okay, if you are going to travel halfway around the world to stay at an all-inclusive resort, maybe you're missing something and your trips could be more enriching by traveling more like don't get out of that comfort zone like don't just go halfway around the world and then be surrounded by all the comforts you have at home Mm -hmm. get out there and do something and and do something different okay i could maybe see how that would be reasonable but this this just drove me nuts and then the other article that i was sent by my guy was another doom and gloom the headline is the last place on earth any tourist should go and it was a story about how you should not go to Antarctica. You should just cut it off your bucket list. And some of the points are legit and that it's talking about how the infrastructure being built to get people to Antarctica. Like people flying in and landing on like basically a tourist version of an aircraft carrier so they can be there for an hour and say they were there. and then Something like that or yeah. some of these camps that are apparently set up. I've personally never been to Antarctica, but I hear it's absolutely amazing, of course. It's just, it's really not what's said because you could make a case, okay, like, yeah, getting in a plane, like, yeah, you probably shouldn't go home for your grandmother's funeral because the carbon imprint's too big. How about we put that headline out there? Like, the last place you should go, you shouldn't go home for your grandma's funeral because you're an asshole with your flights and your rental cars, right? It's just, this kind of, this doesn't do anything. It doesn't push anything forward. Antarctica has been a place of exploration. Again, I'm into Explorer books. People have voyaged to get there, and it's like this place of complete curiosity and just unlike anywhere else on Earth. And to just sort of – this is what the media is doing, right? They just sort of take this like really minute minority position 
and then run with it to get clicks and likes, which really irritates me. This was the most irritating part. It's by Sarah Clements. Wants to tell everyone they shouldn't go to Antarctica. You're a horrible person if you do. And in her bio, it says, as a nine-year-old girl, I was inspired to be a traveler by going around China with my parents for nine months or whatever. Oh, I see. So it's okay for you as a nine-year-old to go and fly everywhere and drive around and explore China, but it's not okay for someone else if they want to go to Antarctica to go there. It's okay for you though. This is just, this is so irritating me in the travel media right now. It's just this like a bunch of people who it's like, pull up the ladder after me. It's like, I've had all these experiences. Now I'm older. And so now I'm just going to criticize everybody who wants to go somewhere and do something. It just it really brings out my crankiness, Tim. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a much better article than the last one we talked about, and it makes some good points. However, it's it it a it fails to note that ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the visitors to Antarctica see the tip of it that is just across uh, uh, from South America. You know, so. Th- the infrastructure that is being built for tourists there is uh, it's only in the one little area. And yes, it, it, there shouldn't be any infrastructure for tourists there. Part of the p- appeal of it is that there isn't that there. I, I agree with her on that, but I think that she, and perhaps it's the way this article was edited. I wouldn't be surprised if that was part of the problem. But I think that they overlooked the fact that most of the tourists only go to the one little dot there that is like a what a two day sail from uh, Tierra del Ushuaia or whatever. Yeah, and yeah, but you could say that about anywhere, right? Like there shouldn't be a city built in Vegas. There right. shouldn't be a town in the rainforest that has to be cut down. We shouldn't be growing wines in Palo. It's like at some point, it's like can't we have any fun? Right? Antarctica is a huge continent. It's like people are visiting a small part and you want to make it seem like the visitors who are going there are horrible people. It's it just it's just sort of like this lecturing mindset. And I find this a lot of the mainstream media. It's like every time I turn around and being lectured about why I'm a bad person and it's like, well, maybe not. Maybe like I have a spirit of adventure and I want to see this planet. And OK, like. I don't know. I didn't invent airplanes. Like, go after the airline industry. Go after all these. I mean, I guess back in the day, travel was more sustainable in the fact that you got on a wind-powered ship and you sailed to Antarctica. You know, all the explorers, the Captain Cooks of the world, which makes it. And that's the thing. It's like they have. Yeah, I get it. Like, there's an impact on everything we do, but we're humans. I mean, we're locusts. Like, we should probably all be eliminated if you want to operate by these standards. Yeah, I mean, you know, she notes in the article that. Tourism to Antarctica is only loosely regulated, which is blatantly false. Tourism to Antarctica is highly regulated. Perhaps they provide too many permits. I don't know. I haven't been there. But I I know a lot of people that have, and it's, you know, it's a pain in the ass before, you know. Yeah, but don't you think this kind of stuff devalues, like just we were talking about, like travel has changed your life, right? So – this is totally undercutting and it's not telling the side of all the people. It's like the national park system, right? You go visit a national park and yes, you have an impact by going there, but a lot of people are highly inspired when they go there and they say, look, wow, like I want to help conserve, conserve this kind of stuff. Someone may go to Antarctica and be like, wow, 
what a special place. Like, I want to help preserve this place. Right. Uh, yeah, there are those that are going to go there and say, oh, I want to exploit this place and I want to sell it and all that. That's a minority. Most people that go here are just looking to explore the planet they live upon, which is a very humanistic thing. It's a very admiral thing. And I don't need some someone lecturing me about everything I do is wrong. Yeah. Sorry no, I don't I, live in New I, York well, City that, and that take goes, the subway. It goes back to what we were talking yeah. about before, about the value of travel being a net positive for the yeah. world. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm as anti this article as you are. I think it's flawed. Would you I, go to Antarctica? Potentially. You know, I've thought about going on a, a ski cruise there. I, but the thing is, is it's so expensive. Okay. But forget uh, about money. It should be. Forget about money. Like, but would you, say, would say you... I got invited on a press trip there. Maybe I would go. I don't know. But if I did go, I know that a, I would follow all the regulations. I know that B, I would turn around an article that is encouraging conservation of the area and talking about the positives that are happening in that direction so that hopefully my net impact is a positive. Well, there you go. You so know? maybe we should focus on just educating travelers. Right. Now, I, that was going to be my next point. Rather than shaming travelers. That was going to be my next point. Is the, the problem isn't visiting a destination. The problem is education, as it is in so many facets of society. The problem is a lack of education and a lack of caring on the part of what is probably a small subset of the people that go there. Because, you know, for example, my I have in-laws that recently went to Antarctica. They've been wanting to go there for decades, planning this trip for years, saved up a ton of money. It was canceled multiple times due to COVID and other reasons. And they finally went there. It was amazing. It was everything they thought it was going to be. And they're the type of people that are very, res- they're very responsible. They're pro-conservation they traveled with a with a, with road scholars, you know. Oh, I guide for them. Yeah, yeah, they're great. You know, I they, love them. They traveled with a company that is going to be subject to all of the regulations of a place and educate and educate you yeah. with, with speakers and sessions and so on uh, along the way. So I don't see how. I mean, yeah, there's an impact of them going there. There's an impact of anybody going there. But I think the net pot, the net benefit of that for society as a whole is a positive and as tr- the transportation sector continues to decarbonize over the coming 20 30 40 years some of the arguments that are made against visiting certain places will become less valid including part of this argument i just think it's hilarious how people and media based in new york city act like they know more about the natural world than anybody else. You know, it's else. crazy. Well, I've never even been to New York City, but like... You haven't been to New York? No. Tim! Uh, really? But I do get that vibe about the, these these big New York media houses and their the culture of fear that they perpetuate on everyone. Like, I've subscribed to the New York Times for years. I love a lot of their journalists. I love their travel section. I read their n- travel newsletter every Saturday. But there are times when I have to take a break from reading their news because it's so negative all the time. 100% of the time. You know? Man. Yeah. 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 And they, it's, it's very elitist. It's like, here's how it is. And, you know, we study journalism. We know. We can see. I can dissect an article in 10 seconds and I can tell the viewpoint of the writer based on where they include certain things, yeah. you know, where the paragraphs are up or down, all this stuff. But yeah, I always get, here's a, here's a great story. I, I just think it's funny how like people who live in a place that has destroyed nature, although they'll tell you central park is just so wild. 
seem to know everything about it. It's like you don't even fucking live anywhere well, you, close read, to it. Read anything, read anything that some of these East Coast media houses write about visiting a, a national park in the American West. Yeah, right? Like, it's Dude, you are the type of person that just drives to the scenic overlook and then goes back to your hotel. You exactly. don't even know what you're talking about. Exactly. Here's a case in point. I was on a media trip, uh, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago at this point to Yellowstone. And we're driving around through beautiful Wyoming. And uh, we're in a van, a la press trip. And everyone's like really enjoying it. And there's this woman from New York there. We come you know, over a pass and you just see out the van like this wide open valley. It's just glistening and gorgeous, a river running through it, the sun illuminating it. And I'm like, wow, in my mind. And this woman, she just goes, wow, look at all that space. What a waste. What? And just the van goes silent. Someone's like, what'd you say? She's like, oh, yeah. She was like, she was like amazed it wasn't developed. She just thought it was like a waste that this all this space existed out here, you know, being from New York. And I'm like, I really can't believe you just said that, and I need to get out of the van right now. I'm sorry. Wow. And yeah, it just was like, I've always found, yeah, that just mentality has really annoyed me. Anyway, relieve my crankiness. Let's relive the glory days. Tell me how you got into yeah. travel writing. Yeah, we, we touched on it earlier. Before, because I wasn't this cranky back we in 2010. Ranting. And I remember thinking travel is perfect and everyone's beautiful. So tell me your story of getting into travel yeah. writing. Because for it, people it, like us, we just talk about it so casually. We're like throwing around these press trip terms. People probably have no right. clue. what We actually met on a press trip. We did meet on a press trip. In Vancouver. It's probably my, my best story of, of meeting a friend as an adult. Oh, I feel uh, I love that, man. Yeah. Uh, we had just bought houses in Palisade like a month apart. Yeah. And then what was it? But what we didn't know this yet. We met in the Vancouver airport. Right, yeah, yeah. And we were It's like May What, what happened was is I, like I showed up on a my flight got in, I think, before anybody else, uh my layover flight into Vancouver before we flew up to northern BC. So you were probably at a co working space. No, or something. I, I was <laughs> undoubtedly was working in the airport as I as I do. But I, I met the PR rep in the airport when she got there, and she was I was like, yeah, I'm from Palisade, uh, or I'm from Colorado, I think is what I said, and she because no one knows Palisade out in in Canada, right? I was like, I'm from Colorado, and she was like, Oh, there's another writer on the trip, Will from Colorado. You'll have to talk to him. And so when you showed up, I was like, Yeah, you know. Then we started chatting, and I was like, Yeah, I just bought this. Uh, this house in a small town in Western Colorado. And you were like, I'm like, yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> Which, like, town? Which town? Which <laughs> town? Like, yeah. Palisade. What? Yeah. That was crazy. Small world. Small world. Um, but anyway, yeah. I mean, my story of getting into, into travel writing and into, into journalism, I mean, this should have been at the top, but I was out of college playing in a punk band. As we discussed earlier, I was working, you know, line cooking gigs at, at a ski resort, at a couple of ski resorts. Which ski side. resort? Purgatory in Durango and then Eldora on the Front Range. Okay. Once we moved up there. And I had basically, in late 2010, I had like a quarter-life crisis breakdown at a gas pump at 7-Eleven. Um, That's very specific. I, yeah, Take us through I mean, that I'll, memory. I'll never forget it. So I, I, the two of the guys in the band moved, had moved, made the decision to move from Denver back to Durango where we came from. Because they didn't like living in Denver, which you know I don't I don't blame them for that. We had a rough year there, but it basically left me in a pickle, and I was pumping gas in my car, and I had just started this new cooking job, and I 
had to pump the last like seven dollars and twelve cents or something on my credit card to max out my credit card to get home from work one night and it was like I had no money I just had to max out this like shitty starter five hundred dollar credit card to buy seven dollars in gas to drive home from work and while I was at the gas pump I had this like breakdown where I was like shaking and I was like I've got to do something else I, I can't like I can't live this lifestyle anymore and I went to school for English and I've always thought of myself as a writer when I was a little kid I published quote-unquote published a sports magazine and I sold subscriptions to my neighbors and my relatives for a dollar a month how old were you I was like nine to twelve probably it was a sports magazine yeah that's super yeah, cool. Yeah, I, I, I uh, designed the cover on this program called Kid Picks that used to exist on the early Apple computers. Um, this was in the early 90s. And I would write some stuff about, like, my Little League baseball team, and then I would kind of, like, repurpose articles from Sports Illustrated for kids. And anyway, so that was kind of that. And then I was on the newspaper staff uh, at my middle school and then at my high school, and then I went to college for English communications, uh, journalism, effectively. And so I had that, but I hadn't done anything with it out of college because I was playing music and I was focused on that. And then this incident a few years later happened at the gas station. After that, I went on Craigslist and I started perusing around the writing gigs section and I found a post for a website that was looking for a writer to write about the Denver music scene. And so I emailed him and was like, hey, you know, I uh, I don't have much of a resume, but I, you know, I, I've... I you know I have a degree in English and I I can write and I I know the music scene really well because I'm a musician I I'm out in this in this in the scene all the time, and so they wrote me back the editor wrote me back is this company based in Philly and she said okay, why don't you go out to a show this weekend and write me a review write a review of it and send it to me on Monday, so I picked a random show out of the Westward newspaper um, anybody in Denver or who knows Denver will be familiar with the Westward. Picked a show, random show, at a club called Moe's Tavern, Moe's Barbecue. I went to it, wrote up a review, and got the gig. It was 50 bucks a week to write a weekly column about the music scene in Denver. And then sometimes they would assign me random other stories. I think one time I, I like did an interview with somebody at the Denver Zoo. Yeah, but dude, something. that's a great gig because a column is where it's at. Because yeah. then you, ha- you know, like the 50 bucks makes it sound cheap but it's also you have the power of the press every week right and more importantly it was it was something like it lifted my spirits yeah uh and Get some taquitos with that 50 bucks yeah right uh, a few weeks later i was i was on the kitchen line at work and i got a random call from this guy and he was like hey like i saw one of your articles on denver tonight and uh you know my buddy and i are starting this website and we want you to write for it and I was like, yeah, man, like, let's do it. <laughs> so that happened. And I was a couple of months later, I was out covering a show for these guys. And I was sitting at the bar just talking to this dude that I knew that was in another band, I think. Actually, he wasn't in a band. He was a photographer, Matthew Zinke. Matthew Zinke, you changed my life if you listen to this. I was talking to this dude, and he points at this guy over at a table in the corner at the merch booth and was like, that dude is the publisher of Colorado Music Buzz. If you're into writing, you should go talk to him. And so I had a little liquid courage, and I went and I went and talked to this dude. His name's Keith. He ended up being becoming very close with him. But 
he I was like, hey, I'd love to write for you, yada, yada, he yada. cold pitched him. Cold pitched him. In a bar. Cold pitched him. Yeah, the cold pitching works apparently. Oh, it does. Face but to anyway, face for he, sure. He, yeah, he gave me his card, and it was the same thing. It was like email me on Monday and, you know, get, send me some ideas. So I started writing for them a little bit. You know, they were in print every month. And then six months later, seven months later, they sent out an email to all their contributors. It was like, we're looking to bring on two editors. And I was pretty much exactly one year into into my writing career, quote unquote, career at this point. And I, I, I was looking in the magazine and I knew that Music Buzz, excuse me, was having a an event that weekend in Parker. So I showed up at the event and I pretty much cornered Keith and was like, you got to give me this gig. Like I'm the dude, you know, yada, yada, yada. And it worked. So I got the gig and I edited for them until 2015 from 2011 to 2015. And then was your first press trip where you went flying with, with them? I did a, f- I did a couple of trips, no, but ever, what was your first press trip ever? I think it would have been with them. We did, we covered, uh, we had a trade with the Snowmass. It used to be called the Chili Pepper and Beer Festival, I, and then it became the Mammoth Festival in Snowmass. So we would run ads for them, and they would host us at the festival, and then you know we would write about it or whatever. Yeah. So I think that was my first one. This was probably like 2012. But like, okay, so what were your feelings during that? Were because you, you know, as my mentor was describing. Travel writing is kind of a double life because for those that don't understand, like a media trip or a press trip or hosted, it's it's basically like applying for a grant. As a media organization, you're going to apply to a destination, a hotel, a festival and say, hey, we want to come to this, but we don't have the funds to support it all for our writers. So can you host us, help us with transportation costs, get us there? Some trips, you know, they'll pay for flights, hotels, everything to set up the story. And so as a young man and a young writer who is maxing out his credit card at 7-Eleven to get gas to get home, a free trip up to Snowmass for the weekend and must have really... Yeah, I mean, it was it was, it was was interesting because the way I handled the trip then is a little different than I would handle it now. Like I, had, I was like, oh man, I got to press press. There's an open bar in the beer tent and I'm going to interview Nathaniel Rateliff and like all these other guys and... Uh, yeah, it was it was cool. What'd you get? Too wasted interview or what no, do you mean? No, no, it was fine. Um Or you're saying you didn't drink then and you would drink now? No, I mean I I would I definitely <laughs> <laughs> I definitely took advantage of the free bar. Not that I wouldn't do that now, but Well of course. Um, that's the perks of the gig, man. Yeah. So that was probably the first time I ever did that. While I was while I was while I was working for them, I did Took take a trip to North Carolina to go on tour with a band for a few days to kind of like gonzo journalism, write about their tour. But I self-funded that. Nobody paid for it. So I think, yeah, those were the only trips I took for Music Buzz. 2015, they go out of business. Literally, a few days later, I'm on Facebook, and this girl I knew in high school that I probably hadn't talked to since high school shared an article from Matador Network on Facebook and I clicked on it and started reading it and I was like, I could freaking do this. And so I started browsing around their website and ended up signing up for their travel writing program. And as soon as I did that, the one of the editors, Carlo, reached out to me and was like, hey, you know, it looks like you've got some experience. Why don't you try writing this title for the magazine and we'll, you know, if it's good, we'll publish it. So I wrote that and then I just started getting a lot of assignments from Matador pretty much straight off. This is in 2015. And I was like full on freelance at that point for them and some other, I was writing for a snowboard magazine and some other stuff on the internet. 
And then in 2017, my, my strategy had been for Matador since I started writing for them. I was like, this is awesome. I went on my first press trip a few months later to Whistler for them. And was, was that like, your first on the plane? That was my first like real, real press trip where like – Like I couldn't I was, afford this actually I was as hosted. a person. They gave right. me lift tickets. They put me with a guide at Whistler. And like, yeah, I, I showed up. I was like, wow, like this is awesome. Yeah. You know? Uh, so You're like super green, super impressed. I was super green. Soaking and up it, whatever it, they fortunately said. Fortunately, it was a solo press trip, so there were no other writers on there for me to embarrass myself in front of. <laughs> <laughs> the first, my first group trip was a few months later to Quebec City. and like Quebec City's great, man. Yeah, uh, Quebec What City's a party great. town. Yeah, what a party. What Crazy, a beautiful town. Beautiful, historic, yeah. but like. Great nature right out of the town, too. Ski resort, tons yep. of hiking, whatever. Great, great place. I could probably post up St. Lawrence River running French, right through. Yeah. yeah. It's a it's, great place. It's nice. Um, but anyway, my strategy with Matador had been, okay, I'm going to try to write with his, I'm going to write for as many editors as possible because whenever an editor position opens, then like I'll be able to send him my resume and they'll all know and trust me and I'll get it. And that is exactly what happened. So two years later in 2017, I got on staff there. And so I've had a staff contract for coming up on six years with Matador. Your story resonates with me so much because I came into travel writing. I'm not going to tell my whole story here, but long story short, I was in California just working some dead-end jobs. I worked for Enterprise out of out of uh, college, but had a journalism degree. Travel writing was like a cheat code to life because you would be able to experience things that you would never be able to afford otherwise. Right. In fact, over the course of my travel writing career, and I know this will come as a big shock to you since I'm such a great dresser, but I have literally been denied access to hotels that I was sent there to cover. The bell guy will stand in front of the door and be like, excuse me, sir, are you staying here tonight? What is your purpose here? I'll be like, I'm meeting with your GM in five minutes. I'm about to go on a tour of your entire property. (laughs) But yeah, it's like you're living well above your lifestyle and above your pay grade. It's such this weird Jekyll and Hyde life where it's like one minute you're, you know, on this crazy ski trip in Whistler that you would never be able to afford. And the next minute you're back in real life and just like, holy shit, like I'm eating spaghetti tonight. And it's when you first get into that, it's such this wild ride of like emotions and you're traveling for the first time. But then, yeah, you just want to keep it going. It gets addictive. At what point did you turn into a stodgy douche? Because it happened to me, <laughs> Am I, a I would say, a couple of years in. I'm, I'm just speaking generally here because, like, <laughs> being in this industry has ruined me on, on shitty motels. Like, I just – I can't do it anymore. I will – I if I'm traveling on my own, I will spend a little more money for a better place now where I would not have done that before. Oh. And if I, if I hadn't gotten so used to staying in decent hotels, probably still wouldn't do. And I'm not saying I'm going to spend hundred like, three or $400 a night – but I'm not going to book the, like, $60 a night motel. I'll book the, like, $120 a night, like, you know. What, I'll, just the because, a, like, I'll book the A-loft you don't want to, like, like be in a hotel where you find, like, pubic hair in the sink? Well, because now like I'm that. used to having quiet. I'm used mm. to having, like, a comfortable bed. The bed like makes a big difference. Decent yeah. coffee in the morning. Yeah, coffee you know? maker. I can't say that I've become uh, a douche, as you will say. In ter- <laughs> like, I'll still sleep in the back of my truck. I, don't I mean, care. I'll still sleep in the back uh, of my truck. I'm saying when I'm, when I, if, if I'm like, 
if I'm going somewhere and I need to stay in an airport hotel for a night because I'm flying out in the morning out of this hotel. Because you need to be at the I'm airport no longer, nine hours I'm no longer going to book like the crappiest motel 10 miles away from the airport. Like I'll pay a little bit more to stay closer to the airport in a decent Yeah, place. You know what the number one thing that surprises me about you still is that how early you get to the airport even though you travel a shit ton. Seven hours, bro. Dude, you are. You literally are. You're like above. Like the airlines are like, oh, you should be here two to three hours ahead of your flight. You're like, cool. Well, don't worry. I'll be there five hours ahead of time. <laughs> Dude, I, I still hear up, there's a good I still up to space. the Grand Junction airport two hours early. Dude, that's insane. You know all the time at home you're missing? <laughs> like, why do you get there so early? I want to work. Dude, I work. I get coffee. I get through security. Got my global entry. Get right through. Global entry to get through Grand Junction. Nice, bro. Yeah, it doesn't really yeah, matter Good thing Grand you Junction. got that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but why don't you just work at home? Because I, I like airports. I focus well in airports. I'm like in the zone. But where do you sit in Grand Junction Airport? The, the coffee shop. The, the cafe, bro. That place is great. You get a table there? Yeah. I get. They used to have the great egg white burrito. Now they don't have it anymore. But they still have pretty good food. I get the bagel sandwich. Yeah. But I get, that's what I got the last time Half the time, time it's cold there. in the middle yeah. when I get it. What yeah. You, yeah. So, you know, what do you do? <laughs> but I'm a last-minute airport guy. I know you are. And, and yeah, I, I know a lot of people in our business that are. Eben, my buddy, is a, is also that. Yeah. And I am not. I, I, I think to me it's more than anything, I just – I have anxiety about it. I like to just get through security. But what – like, haven't you done it a million times? Yeah. And it still gives you anxiety. Still gives me anxiety. Really? Not the flying, just going through security. Like, having your person search bothers you or – I think it's just lines. I don't do well with lines. Mm. I hate lines. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, uh, I don't know. I just don't do well with lines. Queuing is not for you. Yeah, queuing. So do you get to the airport and throw a few back, or are you literally just Sometimes. coffee straight edge? Usually it's coffee because I'm usually flying in the morning. But yeah. In like I don't know if I'm traveling for work, I don't really I'm not really drinking at the airport. Maybe I'll have one on, like on the plane if it's like a long day of travel and I'm almost there or whatever. Yeah, I think that's the biggest change that I've seen is I used to drink a ton when I was. I did too. Flying. I used to. It was like seven oh a.m. at the airport. Yeah, dude. When I on. when I first tra- started travel writing in 2010, my roommate, I would have. I flew out of Santa Barbara, California, and so wherever you were going, you always had to get like a six a.m. flight because you were going to fly Santa Barbara to L.A. and then it was like, okay, now start the journey, right? So if you wanted to get a nine or like a reasonable flight out of LA, you had to leave early from Santa Barbara. My roommate, God bless his heart, he started work at 7 a.m. So he would get up at 5.30. He would drive me to the airport, drop me off. I would bring three airplane bottles with me in my bag. I would get on the flight. At that point, I'm like sitting back by the bathroom. You know, I have no status, no knowledge of where to actually sit on an airplane. So I'm sitting in the back and I would order an orange juice and I would just drink vodka orange juice on my flight to L.A. Six in the morning, six thirty in the morning, and I think if I did that now, you'd when have to wake me up when I, I get doing, to LA. I was doing the same thing when I was twenty-two. It was great, and then by the time I got to my destination, I was normal. Yeah, yeah. I would even I was so poor and cheap is like when I would go on a work trip, I knew that okay, like some drinks would be covered, but I still want to drink when we're off the clock, hanging out. So I would check a bag. I would pay the twenty-five dollars to check the bag, and I would put like a handle of. Uh, like VO whiskey or whatever cheap whiskey I could get. And I would bring a handle with me in my suitcase. Wow. So then I could drink it on the rocks while I was in my hotel room in between activities. It was great. Actually, it led to a lot of camaraderie because 
A, I didn't have to spend money at the bar necessarily that I didn't have. And, you know, in those, now it's like I go to the bar, I'll buy anyone a beer. It's like I, I feel like a working professional. I can afford it, yeah. especially if there's someone interesting. I'll offer to buy them a beer. Back then, I was terrified of spending money. Right. Like your 7-Eleven story, I have my own versions of that where I wasn't making any money travel writing. In fact, it was usually costing me money because I would make 50 or 100 bucks on the story, but I would spend 200 in the course of the trip just on personal expenses, right? So yeah. I would be terrified of spending money. So I would say to people, I'm like, hey, instead of going to the bar, let's go to my room. I have some whiskey and we'll hang out, right? And then you would just become a traveler and you sit on your balcony and hang out and wherever that would lead or inevitably then you go back to the bar they'll buy you a drink because you hooked them up and but that was my style i would always travel with the airplane bottles for the plane because it's not illegal to bring them on it's just illegal to drink them so as long as you're you know being sly about it no one's going to stop you and then i would have the the booze in my suitcase and that's how i would roll yeah all right that was before it was a profession like, like I'm saying, that's what I'm trying to reveal. Like in those initial trips, it was still just such like, I can't believe this exists and I can't believe I'm doing it. And I don't know how long this is going to last, but yeah. I'm going to keep it going. My first trips were like, first one was a driving trip. I went from Santa Barbara up to San Luis Obispo. I stayed at the Cliffs Hotel near Pismo Beach. I remember it beautifully. It was amazing. Then I got sent to Oklahoma to do a tour through Cherokee Nation, the Trail of Tears, and for Will Rogers, a lot of history there. And I thought I was really cool, but then you tell your friends you're going to Oklahoma, nobody's that impressed, so whatever. And then I, my first real press trip was to Puerto Rico. And I remember I met some major players in the travel writing world on that time, like Jimmy M, a guy still my friend today, Lisa Lavero at the time. They were really prominent freelancers, and I just kind of locked eyes with them i'm like how do you do this like are you like and they're sitting around the, i remember being at this cafe and lisa was on a blackberry at the time that was the technology and she's like checking emails and working and i remember saying to her like lisa what are you doing we're in puerto rico we're here for free this is amazing stop looking at your phone and she's like hey dim what like i'm working this is a work trip I'm like, what are you talking about? Because I didn't have to write the story till I was home. This was not like I had a lot of clients or anything. It was just like one outlet I was writing for. So it was a vacation for me. And I really didn't get the fact that this was a working profession. I just thought everyone's playing this game. I remember them talking about linking these trips together. Oh, yeah, like after Puerto Rico, I'm going to St. Kitts. And then I, might, I think I might go to Miami before I go back to New York and all this stuff. And I was so ego about it. Like, I was like, all right, well, I have to have a good story to tell these people. So they'd be like, so, Will, like, how did you get into travel writing? I'd be like, oh, well, I've been to Oklahoma and to San Luis Obispo. And I, I yeah, I traveled throughout California. All the, you know, I just was trying to put on this fake facade. And yeah. then I think finally Jimmy pulled me aside. And he's like, dude, you know, you can just be yourself. It's okay. Like, we know that you're new. Yeah. He's like, we're going to help you. I'm like, great. Next trip I went on, Dominican Republic, total softball story, staying at a resort. You could write it without going. And that's where I met Bruce. And he's been very influential to me. So yeah, it's just by going on these trips, you meet other people doing it. And that really advanced my career and just helped yeah. kind of sort me out. But it's just such like this crazy 
Like I, I guarantee you like 99.9% of the people who read travel magazines don't really understand how the content is created. And right. it's really all bought and paid for one way or another. Yeah, a lot of the times it is. And it's like, it's interesting now. Like, So there, there is a, there's a company that I really want to travel with called Untamed Borders. And they run tours in like Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Yemen, Lebanon, etc. And they got their start. I interviewed the founder, and he's a fascinating dude. They got their start facilitating like war journalists, basically. And so now they do, they still host trips for journalists, but they also host tours in all of these places that you can just sign up and go on. And like, to further your point about people who read magazines don't understand that that's how the content happens, that's how content happens all over the media. Like, it's not like in general a correspondent is just plopped down in the middle of the jungle and has to figure it out like survivor man style. Like there is generally a fixer on the ground yeah, helping yeah. a reporter uh, find the connections he needs. Totally. And, and not to say there isn't some very hardcore reporting happening in the world because there is, but there are also fixers on the ground that are making that reporting possible. Uh, yeah. And I don't mean to present my, like, I'm telling stories about when I was younger, obviously now, like we're talking, I take it more seriously. I, I respect the hell out of you. I remember seeing you in, um, British Columbia and I was like, damn, this guy's like a real journalist. Like while everyone else is posting Instagram pictures, you're taking quotes and taking notes and writing in your <laughs> thing. And then I see your story come out and like has direct quotes from people we've met. I'm like, damn, this guy's legit. Like you, you take your job seriously. Well, I mean, that's, I do, but I mean, I, I feel like that's what I have to do as like a, a staff editor. Like I can't turn around a fluff piece. It's got to be, it's got to be good. You've and never I, written a fluff, fluff piece? I have written fluff pieces for sure. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. I, I like that trip in particular and like we had some really cool interviews out of that and really cool, although the, you know, the press trip was, it wasn't the greatest press trip I've ever been on. But the story was really good, and I saw the angle of how outdoor recreation is helping these indigenous tribes build their economy. And I was like, that is the story. Like, that, this is going to be a portfolio piece for me now because our helicopter hike got canceled, which is fluff. And instead, we went to, like, interview, like, these tribal mayors in their government office, you know, which is way more boring in person but it's a way better story at the end of the day. Yeah, that's that's you a know? real travel helping people. It's like when you go to write a story about a five-star resort, you're like, who's this helping, right? It's like people that can afford it coming here. You're writing about vacation. It's not really a real-world issue. But when travel can mix those things where travel is helping people, right. helping them grow. And like to, to, to the article that – or the you – know, I don't know if it's an article because it's not published, but the email you sent me that is the – the copy from Bruce. from Bruce about how he's jaded on, on travel writing, despite how much it's helped his life. And, and he understands that I see that perspective, but I think that being able to identify what the real story is on a, on a press trip and being able to, to turn it around into a piece that helps people, at least to me is what helps me stay motivated to like, want to want to keep working in, in digital media because yeah, you can go on a trip and turn around a fluff piece in a couple of hours, but then you're like, oh man, like 
You're part of this. You're part you're of the part game. of the problem. Yeah, you know, yeah totally. Point, so, yeah, I agree. I agree. I think uh, the job of a travel writer is not to like everything they do. Some people ask me that. They're like, well, what if you go somewhere you hate? Like, then what do you do? It's like, it's well, yeah, it's great if you're personally involved and passionate. But with anything in life, that's not always going to be the case. The job of a travel writer is to go see what the experience is and identify who would like it and why and who yeah. it benefits and how it can create positive change, et cetera. And then you locate the magazine that will tell those stories and, and you go from there. That's an ideal world. Yeah. It doesn't always happen. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't. So what's next for you, man? The podcast is canceled. I'm sorry about that. Uh, I didn't know yeah. that, but that started as your own. You then sold it to Matador. Yeah. My, my you... co-host Evan Diskin, uh, who's a staff writer at Matador. We launched it during 2020 as kind of a COVID project. It was like a, you know, pandemic project when we were stuck at home. Uh, he's in Massachusetts and I'm here. And we did it for a season by ourselves and then put together a pitch deck and we pitched it out to Atlas Obscura, Vice, and Matador. Obviously, Matador being the low-hanging fruit because we know them and have a relationship already. So we were able to turn that into them kind of acquiring uh, them acquiring our podcast, which I later learned the term for that is Aquahire because we remained as the hosts, you know, so they like they bought us out, but then we still did the work and we did that for another two seasons. And then, uh, this third season that concluded a few months ago was our last, which is fine. You know, it's kind of sad to see it go, but it's, it's also fine. We, we told the stories we needed to tell. Are you going to go independent again or maybe not as, not as that show. I would maybe be open to doing another podcast. I loved it, man. I thought it was cool. You guys had a lot of like yeah, flight you were attendants. Yeah. You were one of our guests. You were a good one. I came uh, on. Yeah. But it, we, we did it online. Like I, well, it's all online. Yeah, all of our interviews are online. You never had in-house guests? No, because, I mean, we don't live in the same place. We can't. Oh, yeah, I guess Evan was uh, afar. Yeah, that, see, that would make it hard for me, doing it on Zoom. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm so used to it that I, yeah, I, you've I, done I, it I don't mind it. But, I, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I've got uh, got the contract with Matador. Um, I'm, I'm starting a new contract with a site called Cool Material that I've done some writing for, but I'll be editing with them. Going forward, I'm editing with Static Media still, um, as of now. And you're on the Pally Tourism Board. On the Pally Tourism Board, yeah, that's the big that's the big money maker there. Is the, there you go. The well, gig. you're the representation of the people, brother. I yeah. So keep resenting as well. I mean, yeah, I I never actually even like I just started this podcast, so I never thought of it ending or a beginning or end. Or so I have uh, yeah, we no never idea did like what it even is. When they told uh, us it was canceled, we were like, at first I was kind of like my ego was a little butthurt about it, but then the more I thought about it, I was like, yeah, that's fine, dude. Like I don't really want to do it anymore. Uh, as as it was, yeah, you know. So yeah, and you guys, is there anything stopping you from just starting something new? No, I don't think – I think we sold the name No Blackout Dates, so I don't think we could call it that, but no. That was but not. people can still find it on Apple Yeah, Podcasts. oh, yeah, it'll be up in, no indefinitely on, on Apple and Spotify and yada, yada, yada. So Nice, man. Well, yeah. maybe we should wrap it up. It's getting late. It's getting a little late for a Monday. Is it Monday? What yeah. do you do? Day well, thanks, Will. Market. Thanks for having me on. It's been great. Yeah, thanks for bringing me to your favorite co-working space. Yeah, Altspace. We should shout out Altspace and Grand Junction. Yeah, this works a lot better than last time. The first time we came here, 
not only did I mess up the recording, but we also had several loud folks mess it up. But yeah, this was great. And then the, the new Gemini Brewing in the in the place you just introduced me to, right, right. down the street, right, a little happy hour the new location. The show. Love it, man. Well, anytime we get together with you and our, I used to blame it on you because ever since you had a kid, things have been different. We used to ski all the time together. Know, Not that I we've know. known each other for that long, but and then when you had a kid, I'm like, all right, Tim's Tim's done. And then now it's like. I'm like, yeah, I haven't seen Tim in a while. It's probably his fault. And then I realized, no, it's my fault. I think I'm as busier than ever, too. So anytime our worlds can come together, brother, I appreciate it. Always a good time, Will. Yeah, dude. Cheers for coming on. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Now I'm riding the terrain, flying high up once again. Got my crew sitting healthy and my boo living wealthy. Level 99, never settle in my mind. So I pedal and I climb up the pedestal and find almighty weapons. So I calm lightly step into the castle, satchel, tackled, wrestled. Down the corridor where I'm grounded through the floor. Roundhouse into my core, down, out, and through the door. Sword down at my side, I gotta round up and ride. Face boss, break jaws till I take off. Face off, stop and swing my serious strike this is it take the title disappear in the night to the whole wide world got the keys to the kingdom overseas with the wisdom guarantee that my rhythm hit the whole wide world slay the boss in the castle when we cross final battle then i walk out travel to the whole wide world got the keys to the kingdom overseas with the wisdom guarantee that my rhythm hit the whole wide world slay the boss in the castle when we cross final battle